Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. This is the Starship Sofa. Everybody, welcome, hello and welcome to Oral's Light, show 158. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello everyone, welcome on this fine day. Guess what this day is, or guess what this week is. It is the launch week of Starship Sofa Stories, Volume 2. It was launched on 10-10-2010 and it's now out. And it's doing really well, wow. Thank you everybody. If you haven't got a copy... I'm going to talk about it later. Get yourselves a copy. Give you a little heads up what's coming in today's show. A couple of announcements. I've got them coming up. And actually one of them is, like you say, talking about Starship Sova Stories Volume 2. And there's a little bit of a mm, disappointing announcement, but these things have got to be said. Flash Fiction comes from Matthew Sanborn Smith. Interview by... Jeff Carlson. Then we have Main Fiction by Jeff Carlson. Then we have... Starship Sova's interrogations, none other than China Mievel sits down and hits the 15 questions. Then we have part one of Sublimation Angels by Jason Sanford, a fantastic story. What, what a show, come on man, you tell me, what a show. So, the two announcements, and I'll get rid of the the nasty announcement first, which is not that nasty really, but Starship Sofa's enhanced feed. This is the feed if you want, you know, you can kind of skip through and everything like that. It's not really taken off, to be quite honest, do you know what I mean? See, I guess we're around about five and a half, six thousand downloads a week there now. It's lucky if it gets 150 
it's just there's a lot of hassle goes into it and I'm going to knock it on the head to be quite honest it's just one thing to be quite honest it actually pushes me limit in Libsyn where I kind of keep me me files it pushes us up and it would actually go into the next bracket which is the top bracket and it's I think I can't remember how much it is but it's probably $80 maybe $100 a month and oh just just for that one bit it's just it's it, it's not honestly not worth it. So, you know, I've got to be harsh and I've got to be cruel to be kind. But, and I'm going to fade it out. You know what I mean? I'm just going to just stop it this week. It'll, it'll certainly go up this week. And it's going to go up until probably Christmas, the beginning, you know, like the new year. That's when I'll, I'll, I'll stop it and say goodbye. If, you know what I mean? If it was working and everyone was like happy and, and, and downloading it, that was great. You know, it would just it'd be a worthwhile job. But like I say, sometimes 150 people, you know, and it's just like it is not feasible money wise. You know, what I mean? it's it's damaging the starship so far, should I say. And like I say, I can justify it if there was a load going for it. But 150, you know, what I mean, so you have been warned it will eventually get knocked on the head. You've got a few weeks, and I'll keep on mentioning it every now and again, but come the 1st of 2011, the first week there, there'll be no more enhanced feeds. Watch, I'll get a barrage of emails now. Sorry, for God's sake, please, man. So just make sure you do swap back over plenty of time to the, the normal feed just to get that. And yeah, I know you're dead handy. You can just skip through bits, especially these announcements. But it ain't feasible, do you know what I mean? It's costing a fortune, and... Not even the hassle to do it, you know what I mean? Because I've kind of clued myself up and that's all right. But it's just, it's not actually worth it. You know, it is if everyone comes over and listens. But alas, they're not. So, next announcement is the good one. Starship Sofa Stories Volume 2 is out. Came out midnight on 10-10-2010. And it literally is it doing fantastic i mean it's not like millions are getting sold but in these first few days i think all different editions have sold more in this we're talking say from sunday to let's see wednesday you know them few days it sold more in them few days than captain's logs did and has done do you know what i mean it's re- i'm really surprised i'm i'm chuffed a bit i kind of got a, a bit knocked flat with captain's logs you know what i mean it's just so much work wedding you know especially the, the kind of transcribers and then i realized how much d had to do on top of doing starships over stories and you know it just it kind of knocked us a little bit you know what i mean a bit flat a bit grumpy mm, bugger <laughs> bugger <laughs> i just sit bugger on the radio <laughs> So, you know what I mean? And then I was a bit kind of, oh, I don't know about Starship. You know, all this work we've been putting in, honestly. It is, oh, a, a, I think Dee's just gone off to like some kind of medical retreat convalescent home. You know what I mean? Just to kind of get away from it. But it's really going good. And what's nice is every edition we're doing is selling which is like amazing do you know what i mean even like the the basic epub text one that's selling you know right through you know there's i think there's six different issues all different variations you know the ones with the extras the extras are so fab you know i had loads of nice comments about them thank you so much do you know it's really nice to, to kind of get one's work appreciated <laughs> i'm saying this as if i have done the thing Dee's the man who's done it do you know what i mean and you, D, what a big bear hug. <laughs> so we're getting all those, and like I say, 
the the selling, which is lovely. And this actually, you know what I mean? This is what supports. This is how I get to do. You know, the show I've got lined up today, week in, week out. This is the kind of bedrock money that now is kind of just going to fund that. You know, which is, if you like what Starship Sofa does, you know what I mean? If you like, we are like in the Hugo winning podcast now because of the content, because of the way we go on. Do you know what I mean? Support it. Do support it. This is the one chance, you know. Think of it as a subscription. Whatever book you get, whatever version you get, think of it as, you know, that's my yearly subscription to Starship Sofa. Starship Sofa. <laughs> I've just had peanut butter on toast for me. <laughs> Sticking a bit. So, and I'll tell you what actually I'm really surprised and I'm really pleased about is the the top editions. You know, the we actually had to put the price up to £89 for the top editions. They're selling, do you know what I mean? And actually, as the moment, they haven't all sold. I think there's probably about half, no, more, there's more than half gone. So if, you know, please just come over there if you want that. You know, you've got to be quick now, mind you, because like I said, they were even selling the first, the first hour. We kind of let the links go live. That was one of the first ones that sold, is that edition. So if you want that one, come over, just try it on the website. You know, don't think, oh, there might not be any left, because there might be. Do you know what I mean? They're not selling every hour, bang, bang, they're all gone. I think we've got about probably 12 left, 12 kind of copies left. If, if I'm not too sure, if that, you know, it might all change when they kind of listen to this. But definitely the biggest seller is the paperback version with the extras. You know, that's the one kind of, I would say that's our flagship, but that's the one where most people are buying because it's, it's a nice price and it's got the extras in, you know. Now, here's a thing I didn't actually know about. It was Gonzalo over on the forums mentioned, or he actually did a search, and that you can get 20% off the books in just by typing this code, and it's Booktober, which is B O O K. T O B E R. If you do that on the Lulu site, or when you go through the process of, like, say, booking Lulu and then go through the buying process, there's a little bit where it asks you for the code. You get 20% off. Now, we've actually reduced the paperback volume one right down to 40% off that. So then you get another 20% off as well. I think I haven't bought that, mind you, but that's the price it's set at there now. I'm sure you'll be able to use that code on that one. But it's still 20% off all the range there, apart from the very top one. <laughs> As if I'm going to do that for that one. But all the others, you know, even the hardback book, 20% off. Do you know, special edition one. That is rather a, a, a fantastic little code, Gonzola. Thank you so much. The hardback one is actually selling as well. We've got like a hardback, a normal hardback edition type. With the kind of the wraparound cover. That's going great guns as well, do you know? And actually, oh, sometimes you could just throttle Lulu, do you know what I mean? You, you you get it all sorted out and then again, exactly the same. You know, it hits you with a kind of, a, 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 what you call it, a, a, what you call it, a postage cost, you know, for me to kind of, <laughs> unreal. The postage costs for me to ship these books, like the hardback books, today so Dee can kind of do his little magic and put it in. You haven't got a clue what that costs. It's a four... Well, it is, let's see, I'm sure the the quote I got was oh, from Lulu when he did all tallied it all up. It was £145.8. <laughs> it's just like, yep, in what? Eh, come on. But what can I do? You've got to get them over to Dee and I've got to order them through Lulu. You know what? Whatever way they're gonna, they have to be bought 
and sent over somewhere. So that's actually the price. But it's going great guns, and I'm so proud of everyone who's buying this book. Do you know what I mean? It's it's like a honestly, it is a year's worth of work for Dean myself, and especially Josh as well, doing the website and skeet with the the cover and skeet again. <laughs> when Josh put up the website, who was missing? The one guy who was missing from the website was Skeet. <laughs> Lovely little email, hey, Tony. Um. I'm, I'm I'm not there on the on the website. <laughs> you know what I mean? Poor lad's got such a complex now. Anyway, there you go. So if you do want to support Starship Sofas, you know this is the kind of a bottom line as well. Why we're losing the kind of enhanced feed is you know it is too much money. This is a nice way to kind of support Starship Sofas, so at least we can do things you know in in the future. Please support the Starship Sofa, and this whole show really is. A kind of homage to that book and, and what's going on. Like I say, we've got a Jeff Carlson story and an interview we've actually got who's in the book. China Mieville, Starship Sova's Interrogations, you know, he's in he's in the book. Jason Sanford, fantastic a fantastic story in the book as well. He's in the in the book. Matthew Sanborn Smith, nah, he's not in the book. I don't know, I don't know how he got himself slipped into this show, but we've got a little flash fiction by Matt as well. So that is coming up on the day show. Like I say, thank you so much. Please support Starships over. I'll be wittering on about it for a long, long time. So, you know what I mean? It'll just sink into your subconsciousness to go out and buy that book. Thank you so much. <laughs> Flash Fiction comes from Matthew Sanborn-Smith and it's narrated by Grant Stone. The Ones That Got Away by Matthew Sanborn-Smith I sigh. Back to work on a Pleasant Valley Tuesday, all sunshiny and comic book sweet. If only. The van's a noisy biodiesel which seemed like a good idea twenty years ago when a tank of fuel only cost a trip to the nearest deep-fried everything dive. Never mind that the fuel prices went through the roof once they finally coaxed a decent greasy flavour out of processed apple peels. The old regulations still sat on the books whether or not they made financial sense. I waved the kids in the street. The little ones all waved back with cheery smiles. To them, I'm like an ice cream man, pretty van and uniform. The older ones, eight, nine years and up, know what I do. If they even acknowledge me, it's to flip me off. A red-headed kid straddling a blue huffy makes a downward motion with his hand. I lower the window. My dad says knowledge should be free, the kid yells. I want to say, tell your dad he's an idiot, but I just smile and wave. Free knowledge is fine and nifty, until it kills a family member. I drive down about a mile more, away from the kids, pull over into the grass. My name is Don. I work for the county. I wander the neighbourhoods of suburbia, catching stray thoughts that have gotten away from their makers. There are so very many of them today, the air is almost hazy with them. You pay a price for your three-day weekends. If I don't keep the numbers down, they'll wreak havoc on the streets. An unsuspecting driver will get distracted by an errant thought and veer over the lines. A kid might get the idea that playing with matches or an electrical socket is good fun. The quiet guy who lives next door and keeps to himself will suddenly hear voices in his head. I hop out of my air-conditioned white van with the words Thought Control of Spencer County painted on the sides. 
I've got my short-sleeved pretend cop blues on and a huge net made of neurons. The sunshine heat feels good for the first minute. I breathe deep the smells of fresh-cut grass and unwashed dogs. A little stretch and then I'm on. I race down the side of the road, open net held high. Thoughts float thick in the air and I sweep them up just as fast as I can run. To the uninitiated, I look like a complete moron, a long-dead gag from a laugh-in rerun that escaped from a glass-skin breach in a six-year-old picture tube. The net's full, and it's off to the van to store my prey in the brain boxes stacked high on either side in the back. I'm already cooling from my first big sweat when I slam the door shut and run once more. I wish that I was smarter. Doctor smart, or lawyer smart. No, more than that. Mozart smart, or da Vinci smart. Rain man smart. That would be the best, maybe. Once I've got a full load, I head to the pound. Pretty Selma waits at the back door. I'd like to think she's waiting for me, but she's having a quick nosh. She's English. In the fresh air. Inside gets stuffy, what with the thought leavings, the scales, feather and fur from caged ideas. They beat themselves against their little prison bars, searching for that one synapse. That's all it would take, and they'd be free to roam again. Free to have fun. That was a quick run, Donald, Selma says, as she helps me unload the van. She's the only person that's ever called me Donald, including my mother. It's kind of funny. Always like that after a holiday. No one's been cleaning the streets for the last two days. The alcohol too, I suppose, Selma says. She lets out a little grunt as she hoists up a box. Her dark hair shines like a shampoo commercial. Huh? I ask. The alcohol. It lowers inhibitions. People start thinking all sorts of things they wouldn't otherwise think. Ah, oh, yeah, I say. I hadn't thought about that. Selma's smart. Not doctor smart, but smarter than me. She's nice, too. She helps me load fresh brain boxes into the vehicle, even though she doesn't have to. Well, I say, not really wanting to leave. Back at it, then, I guess. Want some crisps? She asks, holding out the bag. She's taking a class in American as a second language, but I don't mind foreign tongues so much. She's trying, at least. Thanks. I cup my hands. Just pour it. I haven't washed up. The crunch is good, and I need the salt after the morning sweat fest, but I swear I can pick up a hint of apple. So, you, uh, have a good weekend, I ask? Okay. You do anything for the holiday? Not really. I don't really know anyone over here. How about you? Just played Brain Gym 27 all day. Ordered a pizza. Yeah, she says, nodding. Her hands are deep in her pockets, stretching out her black hoodie until it wants to rip. Hey, listen, I say. That new Indian place is opening up on Thursday. You want to check it out? You know, before the roaches move in. She shakes a little, with a silent giggle. Yeah, okay. That would be cool. All right, then. Friday good? Yeah. Friday's fine. Good, then. Okay. If you excuse me, I'll need to collect my thoughts. I catch one last smile, and I'm a happy goose, tearing out of the parking lot, tires kicking gravel in six different directions. The lucky thoughts find new homes. We get browsers at the meme pound all the time, but never a lot. Mostly people looking for a new idea for their kids or childless couples who haven't got a clue. All people who don't want to be troubled to think for themselves. The rich and upper mids go to breed mines and pay crazy money for a cultured thought with provenance. But what do they really get out of that? They're just showing off. Those ideas seem watered down to me. 
worse thoughts at a higher price. Myself, I admire the people at the pound, serving practical purposes and trying to save the life of a perfectly good thought while they're at it. In my opinion, a lot of these mutts are worth ten purebreds each. Their concepts, raw and wild and full of vitality, who wouldn't want a thought like that? I like watching the public on the floor. Stubby-fingered little girls with wide eyes and flowery tops. Every single thought is amazing to them. Everything is new. Lonely ladies shop for romance. Husbands on their arms who don't have any idea. Some people come in looking for recipes. Some for new business models or that one epiphany that's going to turn their lives around. A few sniff around for sexually arousing thoughts. I don't generally care for those people. Of course, we never offer the dangerous ideas to the public, the ones about killing your wife in her sleep or blowing things up. That's a big part of why my job exists. I can stare at the cages for hours, too. There's something so transcendent about a piece of kitchen counter philosophy or a loving thought for someone you see on the street that you don't even know. Among the junk thoughts and the -the off-the-cuffs, some of the greatest glimpses of the human race can be found here. Before I return from my second run, I stop for lunch keeping the worst part of the day at bay. Egg salad sandwich from Rosie's. Man, it's good. I never would have thought of a slice of tomato on egg salad, but that really gives it some zing. Plenty of salt. That should go, without saying, and two very tall glasses of ice water. Life is grand. If that Indian place is half this good, I can lay me down and die. The tip's on the table. I kick back in my booth for a few minutes, putting the afternoon to come out of my mind as always. I spread my arms out on the back of the seat, prop my feet up on the red vinyl cushion in front of me and just stare between the slats out at the street. Cars with somewhere to go and pedestrians with nowhere to go. A pharmacy across the street. I ignore my usual thoughts, don't even give rise to them if I can help it. Normally I'll think about every man-made thing out there and in here and how it was a thought in someone's mind before it was anything else. Then I'll think what would happen... If all those thoughts I find wandering aimlessly day in and year out, what would happen if they each had a fertile mind in which to plant themselves? How different the world might be. But today there's none of that. My head's just empty and open for airing out. I run my fingers absent-mindedly along the tabletop, chipped where it meets the stainless steel edge. So good to be mostly mindless for just a little while. One more sigh and I'm back on my feet. Back to work. Like I said, even though traffic at the pound is steady, there are never enough people. Three days after the stray thoughts come in here, we have to put them down. The Thursday and Friday pickups are always the unlucky ones. They lose a day of shoppers because there's no one here to man the place. We get a couple of high school kids in here on Sunday to feed the thoughts and clean the cages, but the pound's not open to the public. The few times a year we get a three-day weekend, well, those pickups are the unluckiest of all. This is the part that no one likes to talk about, the part that keeps me staring out of Rosie's window for just a little longer than my allotted hour. All manner of people look away. I don't blame them. I bring Friday's cages into the back room, where we keep the old, plaque-ridden brains donated by widowed spouses who want to feel their loved ones made one more contribution to the world, even in death. No one helps me to move the cages this time, and I don't expect anyone to. This is the part of the day that bumped me up a pay grade. I feed insulated lines from the cages to the brains and take one last look at the little ones. They're skittish, rattling around in there, the very thoughts I caught days earlier. The cute ones, the beautiful ones, the noble ones, along with the not-so-pretty, the ones that got away. By now, 
They were almost my babies. I open up the lines. When I was new, I'd break down into a full-blown sob at this point. Even now, eight years into this job, my eyes always tear up. I catch a blurry movement at the half-open door. It's Selma. It's got to be. I turn my head quickly, but I hear her booted feet cross the concrete floor. She keeps her back to the brains and cups my elbow in one hand, holds on to a couple of my icy fingers in her other. I squeeze back, while Selma waits there quietly. Within a minute or two after entering the ancient brains, the stray thoughts are gone, thoroughly forgotten, never to return again. I always think the same thing. I wish I was smarter. I wish I could have taken them all home with me. There you go. Two guys I could really do with meeting one day and giving big hugs to. You know, these two are just amazing people. Thank you so much, Grant, Matt, stars. Interview time. Man, yeah. All right, well, here I am. I'm talking. It's a one, two, it's a test. It sounds good. We got some audio quality. How's it going? I'm looking at these pictures of your beautiful award. Looks like the kind of thing you could stab an ape in the head with on Planet of the Apes, you know? You know what I'm saying? Let me introduce you. We have the fantastic Jeff Carlson on the line. Jeff, one of the probably, I think, one of the top thriller writers now, just breaking into the market. Jeff, how are you doing, sir? Well, I'm I'm uh, just green with envy and respect <laughs> and admiration, Tony C. Smith. Oh, it's, uh, Let's talk about you, man. How does it feel? Tony Smith, you just won a Hugo Award. Where are you going? <laughs> I'm going right to bed after this phone call because I've got work the next day, so... No, I'm going to Disneyland. You're going to Disneyland. That's the answer. Blown away, to be quite honest, you know. So, but you were just telling us before that you've won some awards. Maybe not a Hugo, but you've won. What, what have you won? Well, I don't know. I've been shortlisted for some stuff. I mean, that's kind of cool. It actually, I mean, it actually is an honor just to be nominated. I, I actually feel like I should get a small piece of your Hugo. I mean, I've been on Starship Sofa a few times. It was probably my stories. Right, it was my story to tip the balance, Tony. <laughs> exactly, sir. Exactly, and you've got a well, you've, right. You've, yeah, that's what I'm thinking. Yeah, yeah. Go on then, <laughs> claim it. You've got one in the new Starship Sofa's Stories Volume Two as well, and we've got some funky artwork for that story as well, Jeff. So look out for that. I'll cool. Be... No, you the cover. The cover for volume. Yeah, the cover for Volume One was just absolutely awesome. So have you have you seen Volume Two yet or not? Or I haven't. I'm a busy guy, and you never you never send me any emails, man. I, I couldn't find it. What's is it? Is it awesome looking? Is it cool? Oh, it's it's fantastic. Stay there. I'm gonna just forward it now to you, so you can have a look. Can't do two things at once. All right, maybe. fantastic. Yeah, 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 yeah. I want you to be chewing gum and juggling your Hugo while you're doing it. <laughs> it's, yeah, no, that's it's exciting, man. I mean, I'm I'm excited for you, I man. That's cool stuff. Well, it's um. I can't stop talking about it, but you know, everyone will probably be sick as death as talking about it. But tell us about you then. What's what's happening with you? No, no. I figure you could you get to talk. You could talk about it for like another maybe like two months, but not more than that. Not more than like another eight weeks, and then you got to just stop cold turkey. Um, you know, I'm just I'm just doing my thing. I'm working on my next book, which is still like a big fat secret. I can't even tell you the title, Tony. I can't even tell you the title of the book because it's so cool. If I told you that even the title of the book that I'm working on, you would run home and try and write the book yourself before I could finish it. 
So you could, I mean, even even just the title alone is just like the coolest thing ever. So this is not the one called Connolly High. That's <laughs> that's not it, is it? No, no, no. That's that's that one's public knowledge. No, that's uh, yeah. The the book I'm working on is another solo novel. Um, it's another you know kind of crazy high concept you know sci-fi thriller kind of a book. Um, I'll tell you, I'm leaning a little more. This is total heresy on Starship Nova. I'm leaning towards a little more towards the mainstream, you know, because it's another present day. It's outlandish but plausible, you know, a lot like the Plagueir novels. Like it could happen. It's a little out there, but it could happen. And so the book I'm working on right now, uh, it's, you know, it's got like the crazy high concept. It's got the fun cast of characters. Of course, there will be exploding helicopters and stuff. But mostly it's about, it's about you know, taking uh, the present-day world and kind of twisting it sideways and, you know, what would happen and what if. And, again, I can't even, I can't even tell you uh, even, like, leaving, like, the log line of the book because it's so cool, Tony. <laughs> it's so cool that you would run home and try and write the book before I could. When, when have you got to hand it in by? Well, that's, uh, that's, the next, that's the next part of, you know, every day for me is a roller coaster of terror and excitement, Tony. The, uh, the life of a professional writer is, is just anxiety and joy and thrills and despair every day. Have you ever read, I mean, you're a sci-fi guy, have you read the book, The Princess Bride? You know, they made, you know the, the movie was kind of like, okay. Uh, but if you read the book, in the book, there is the, uh, the one guy's father is the sword maker. Right, and he's like this obsessive genius, and he's a total manic depressive, and he's and he's he's up and down. You know, he's trying to make the the perfectly balanced sword for the six fingered man. Because I haven't actually read the book. I've seen the film, and I actually oh, love the film. Man. So is the you book. haven't read the book. <laughs> a Hugo winning bloody guy, and he hasn't even read that book. You Shocking. cultureless heathen. <laughs> yeah, well, William William Goldman. You know the guy who wrote the script for Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, and the book and the script for Marathon Man with Dustin. Goldman moment of absolute genius in the field. Um, and so the book, the, the movie, The Princess Bride, you know, it's okay. But the book is, I mean, it's actually a fantastic book. I'm not, I'm not like a big fantasy guy either, but I mean, it's, 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 a really well, it's a really well done book. And in the book, you know, the, uh, the hero's father is this super genius sword maker who is tasked then with, you know, creating a sword for a six-fingered man. And so this, this obsessive metallurgy genius, you know, locks himself away in his blacksmithing shop, you know, for 12, 14 hours a day working on this sword. And, and every day he'll come out. He hasn't eaten and he hasn't slept. And his son will ask, you know, well, how's it going, Dad? And, you know, and one day he's totally up. It's the roller coaster of anxiety and excitement. One day he's like, he's like I'm the greatest sword maker that ever lived. My, my name will go down in history. I'm a legend. I'm the greatest ever. And then the next day he'll come out and he's pulling out his hair. And, you know, and he's weeping. And his son is like, well, uh, what's happening, Dad? And he's like, I'm an idiot. I'm a complete buffoon. I, I can't, you know, do anything. It's not coming out right. And so then every day it's back and forth. And for me, and for a lot of professional writers I know, because we all have neurochemical imbalances, which is why we like to sit alone in a room and write all day, um, you know, every day it's like this roller coaster of anxiety and joy and excitement and despair and hope. And it's just, it's just up and down. So, I mean, you know, I mean, most days I'm like, oh, I'm the greatest sword maker that ever lived. This book is going to be so awesome. You know, my fans are going to love it. The critics are going to love it. You know, Ridley Scott's going to come along and make like a giant summer blockbuster out of it. And then the other days, you're like, you're like, oh, I wonder if anybody's you know going to like it or or get it or will anybody buy it or will the chain stock it? Will we get the co-op? Will we get the promo? Will the critics love it? Um, I mean, there's so many other more intelligent things that you could be doing to make a living, like podcasting. <laughs> is is right actually writing it, Jeff? Is that easy for you? The actual process of writing, or does that chew you nuts as well? 
No, it goes it goes back and forth. I've been experimenting with this book. I started experimenting with my actual day to day process. Um, I'm usually a pretty, I mean, comparatively to you know, I know a lot of you know, professional writers now, and you know, we kind of talk shop and stuff. And there's a lot of guys who are you know cranking out two or even three or even four thousand words a day, and that's a lot. You know, a manuscript page is 250 words. So if you're writing, you know, 4,000 words a day, my goodness. Um, I'm much more like, you know, if I can write 1,500 to 2,000 words a day, I'm pretty excited. Uh, the upside is that, you know, I'm, I'm somewhat of a slower pace, but my stuff tends not to need a whole lot of editing, which is nice. For this new book, I decided to just sit down, you know, every day, I just drink like a whole pot of coffee and just go bananas. And I had a I had a two week period. I wrote ninety pages in two weeks, which for me is just insane. I was like, I'm like, man, you know, I've written like a fifth of the book already, and it's just out. Well, and then I had to go back, and I sat down with it. I started reading through it. Yeah, and I'm like, I'm like, oh my god, I'm an idiot. I'm, I'm a complete buffoon. I couldn't make a sword to save my life. Uh, and I'm like, what am I thinking? So like, of the, I wrote those ninety pages, and like ten of them I just immediately cut. I'm like, well, this is repetitious, or this is unclear. Now, so now I spent like the next two weeks you know, editing those 90 pages and, and boiling it down to something that I feel is, you know, is worthy. Um, and so, like, I ended up, I ended up spending the, the exact same amount of time to come up with something, except for, for me, the, the, the pitfall, the trap, is, I mean, I can be pretty obsessive. I mean, I'm the kind of guy who, you know, before Plague Year was published, I, I mean, I had read that manuscript like 40 times. I'm not, I'm not exaggerating, you know, where you read the book again, and you go through every line again and you and you contemplate the placement of every comma in every line again and by the 40th you know iteration you're like you're like this book is so boring because you know absolutely everything that anybody says any plot twist any character nuance you're like you're like of course i saw that coming it's so obvious people are going to hate this uh, and the trick of course is most people don't you know won't read the book 40 times so it won't be quite so old hat to them. So uh, recently I've gotten into this trap where I spent like these two weeks of very intensively editing those same 90 pages again and again and again, trying to boil it down and make it sing and dance. And, and, uh, and uh, you know, the, the intellectual challenge of that is pretty gratifying. I mean, I, I love what I do. I love being a professional writer. I mean, when it's, when it's going well and when it works out and you walk away from the manuscript and you feel like it's all there and the characters are alive and the plot twists are fresh and twisty and stuff, you're like, you're like man, I'm a super genius. Nobody can build a sword for a six-fingered man better than I can. Uh, but then you have the days, you know, where you struggle. You know, maybe you write like a couple pages or you spend like, you know, again, like two whole weeks editing the same 90 pages, you know, like 10 times. And you're like, you're like, oh, my God, this is so much work. I should be I should be podcasting. I should be doing something that will be fun and, and win me awards and chicks and, and cash and that kind of stuff, right? Where does the short stories come into it then? When when can you get time for them? Do, do, you, do you actually just stop the novel and have a, like a, a three or four day break and just jump onto something else, or can you only write the short stories after a book's finished? Yeah, that's 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 an excellent question. I mean, and again, it's I know it's different for I know it's different for everybody. Me, I usually like to just work on one project, and when I finish a book, I'll usually sit down and do a couple few short stories just because it's a good it's a good break. You know, it's just a lot of fun to just write something that's, you know, 30 or 40 pages and just be done with it, as opposed to writing the 500-page manuscript that, you know, takes you a year. Um, I'm moving more and more away from the short stories, though, just because, again, I, I mean, I do this professionally, and I have a mortgage, and I have children. You know, we hope they're going to go to college someday and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, the short stories are a lot of fun. They just don't pay very well. Uh, and it's, it's hard to – I've gotten better at that. I mean, a lot of my short stories are being picked up overseas. You know, so you're being paid two or three or four times for the same piece of work. 
it's the same angle you're trying to do with the books. You, know, you write this, you write one book, and you sell it in five, six, ten languages. Um, that all adds up pretty fast. The short stories are a lot of fun. I'll tell you. I mean, if if uh, we were back in the day, you know, nobody had television, much less the internet, and just sat around and you know read the New Yorker and Atlantic Monthly, you know, every night, and they're paying you five thousand dollars for a short story. Uh, in a lot of ways, that can I just have stacks and stacks of ideas. It's just a matter of, you know, should I spend a month writing a chapter in the book or should I spend a month, you know, writing the next short story? You know, it's going to pay a few hundred bucks. Um, you know, just, just from a sheer, I mean, not to sound too mercenary, but from a sheer commercial standpoint, it just doesn't make any sense. And yet it's a lot of fun. I mean, you have all these small little, small little nuggets of ideas that aren't big enough for a novel. Uh, but are fun to jump into, you know, uh, like, you know, I have a story upcoming in Asimov's and I just had the greatest time writing it. I'm like, Oh, what a, what a clever little idea, but it wasn't enough for a novel. It was just something you just kind of bang out. You get the character, you get the scenario, it happens and you get to walk away and you get that sense of accomplishment. You know, it's much more of a sprint as opposed to like the endless marathon of sweating through the same 500 page manuscript for the 40th time. Shoot me in the head. So, Jeff, then where you know where the hell you getting the time for to, to jump on board with David Brin and write another one? Is is that one already done? Is it or? Well, it's funny, you know that that book is like ninety percent done, uh, and David's even deeper in than I am. I mean, that's why he originally approached me because he needed a collaborator. Um, I'll tell you, I don't think either of us ever imagined that it would take this long. I mean, David has three kids; they're teenagers. Uh, you know, they're all black belts. I mean, it's. I mean, I'm a pretty smart guy. David is like fearsomely intelligent. I and mean, when you're in the room with this guy, you're like, you're like, you're like, wow, I'm an idiot. This guy's so smart. His kid, his kid, I mean, I'm not even kidding. I mean, I'm a pretty smart guy. I mean, I'm like genius level IQ. And like, when you're hanging around with David Brin, you're like, you're like, I'm nothing. I'm just a little mouse. Uh, his kids are the same way. And they're all like, they're all black belts and they're all like electrical engineers and they're all writers themselves. I mean, they're so, you know, they're so uh, polymath. They're all just polymaths and everything that you can possibly imagine. Um, and so he's involved with all that. Uh, David consults with alphabet soup agencies who shall not be named. Um, you know, and uh, we can say Homeland Security. I mean, he consults for Homeland Security on all kinds of cool stuff and, and other, uh, at other alphabet agencies. He does speaking. I mean, this is a man who's allowed himself to be drawn so deeply. I mean, these things are all really, must be really, really cool, you know, to have the federal government flying you around to these think tanks. Um, but he's allowed himself to be drawn away so far away from the writing. Uh, and then in my own life, you know, we have two small boys. You know, we have family. I like to be actually away from the computer once in a while. You know, we hike and ski and swim and whatever. Uh, I mean, it, it's tough. It's tough to find time to be juggling all those projects. See, I mean, our book is essentially done. Uh, what it needs is, you know, the editing where you sit down and you read through it like 20 times and make sure every line is perfect and back and forth. And then, and then boom. I mean, my hope is that my hope is that it would be out next year. I don't know if that's realistic, you know. How um, did, uh, you, how did you go about writing it with him? Though? Did, you, did you write the first chapter? He write the second chapter or did you write well, the it's whole? A much more, it's a much more uh, master-slave relationship than that. <laughs> um, I mean, he is David Brin and I am, you know, I'm still, I'm just Jeff Carlson. Uh, so he originally, I mean, he was originally approached for a blurb for Plague Year. I mean, I was, you know, they got him on the back cover saying, you know, one of the best debut novels in years. Um, and yeah, at the time he turned around and said, wow, I really like your writing. Here, I, gotta, I have a fun anecdote for you. Uh, at Colony High, he had written, I think he's had it around for quite a while. He had written basically like, like a, a novelette or a novella-length piece, you know, like, like, you know, 90, 100 pages. 
um, and had like the basic idea. And he had a, a reasonably well fleshed out outline for like, the rest of the story. And it's actually set up to be, you know, you can either do it as a series or certainly as a trilogy. I mean, it's, it's a great idea. Um, it's a lot like a modern twist on Highland's Tunnel in the Sky. You know, where you have a bunch of, you know, a bunch of Earthlings are transported to another planet and, you know, chaos ensues. It's, 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 a, it's a wide open kind of a universe story that you can play with. Uh, so he got back to me and said, uh, you know, hey, would you like to help me finish this thing? And the joke, of course, uh, I got two anecdotes for you. The joke, of course, was that the byline would be alphabetical. It would be Bryn and Carlson. You know, haha, like there's anything, like there's any publisher in the world who would do it, Carlson and Bryn. Uh, and then the, uh, the, second, the second anecdote, I mean, this is a situation, I mean, he had taken it to the point where our, you know, our uh, fine young heroes had been transported to this alien planet, you know, and the poop was just about to strike the oscillating rotor in a big way. Um, I mean, he had, he had set the whole thing up. And he said to me, he said, I sometimes have problems killing off my characters. <laughs> I, you know, I raised my hand. I'm like, it's, that's really not a problem over here. In fact, I'm really, I'm really good at just laying waste to my cast of characters. Um, and so I sat down, and we, we back and forth with the outline quite a bit. I mean, I've got to say, I don't know, man, we have like a detailed like 50 or 60-page outline at this point. Uh, which you know, which is more than enough to get through it. So we back and forth on that. I was like, you know, I threw in some of my own ideas, and he nixed some of them, and he ran with some of them. And so we, you know, we we developed the whole character and plot arcs all the way through. And then I pretty much just sat down and banged out the whole story. Um, and the interesting part was I was trying to channel Bryn's voice while I was doing that because we do have fairly different writing styles, um, and. Um, just as a writer, it was, you know, he would he would sort of he's kind of screening what I'm doing. Okay, this is cool. I like that. Oh, let's add a little bit here. Oh, let's take this stuff out. And so for me, that was kind of like a crash course in boot camp and writing. Um, so you know, David writes pretty cerebral, you know, heavy stuff, and yet it's very very accessible. And so he's got that neat balance between being just supremely intellectual without you know being too dense. I mean, he's definitely writing you know, like like hard sci-fi. It's not for everybody, uh, but he has you know a phenomenal fan base, you know, for good reason. And so that was that was stuff that I took away from this relationship. Like like ooh, I can by by trying to write in his voice with him looking over my shoulder, I learned a lot of that good stuff about again accessibility and when when not to overwrite with the science, you know, or the info dumps, and when to just kind of sneak by with stuff. So uh, it's been a lot of fun. Again, the trick is the trick is the book is essentially done. It just needs a lot of editing, and it would be really, really cool to have it out there. Patience, young Luke, patience. Yes, that's exactly, exactly, sir. What else has been happening? Uh, what I was going to ask you, you know, like you say, you've, yeah. had, you've had them three books out, and I don't want to kind of pry into this in your, your bank balance, but is it a good time for Jeff Carlson? You know, is writing still, you know, that's going to be your main income? You're not going to go on to like another day job and keep writing at, at the, kind of the, the sideline? Is writing still going good where you can plow all your time into it? Yeah, well, again, it's it's kind of that daily roller coaster of excitement and despair. Um, I mean, there's there's um, you know, like this year. I mean, everybody's kind of a tough tough year this year. One of the things that's tough for me, um, you know, just a just a bare eye chest, um, is that I mean, these are great problems to have. I mean, being published around the world. Obviously, I'd love to be in even more languages, you know, more countries, more publishers. Uh, one of the things that happens is that every publisher in the world, including here in the U.S., um, they float their payments. What a lovely word. That means delay. They delay their payments as long as possible. Um, and some of, I mean, you know, publishing isn't an industry with like a huge profit margin. So, I mean, I'm not in any way 
soliciting sympathy for the publishers. I mean, they've done pretty well with my books. Give me the goddamn money, right? <laughs> um, and so some of the uh, some of the publishers overseas who shall remain neatness on your Hugo Award-winning podcast, uh, some of them are especially slow to pay um, even the advances. Sometimes the advance comes after the book is out, and it's called an advance because you get the money in advance. Um, and sometimes they're even in breach of contract with royalties, like too late. I mean, everybody in the world has a 90-day pay period. 90 days is plenty of time to count how many barcodes have been scanned or how many electronic files have been downloaded, add it up, you know, and, and you know, send poor old Jeff Carlson out in California his, you know, his slice of the pie. Um, so, I mean, it's, it's just the, the income is really up and down. Um, two years ago, things were really clicking for me, and the books were selling like hotcakes all around the world. We, like, we bought my wife like a new car, and we paid down a bunch of our debt. And like we actually, we actually had so much money coming in, we didn't even know what to do with it. Now that sounds pretty funny. We're we're pretty. Uh, I mean, we're pretty simple people. If you want to remember, what we like to do is ski and backpack. We are not. We don't have like big expensive tastes. I do not have like a movie theater, you know, in my basement. I don't even have a basement. Um, so I mean, you know, we had that one really good year. Like we didn't even like. We honestly didn't know what to do with the money. So you know, we put we put a bunch of it into the IRAs, Roth IRAs. You're British. You probably don't even know what that is. I'm good. We put too. money in. Okay, good. We put we put money into like retirement accounts, and we invested it in you know various stocks and stuff. We're like we're like wow, this is awesome. I mean, we honestly didn't know what to do with all. I mean, we're talking like a couple a couple you know tens of thousands of dollars, right? We had like we had like twenty thousand dollars. We didn't even know what to do with. I mean, after buying the car and paying down some debt and covering you know all of our utilities for a while and paying for childcare and everything. I mean, that's awesome. That's really really, really cool. Now this year, you know, just while we're doing the Jeff Carlson expose, this year's been a lot tougher. I mean, it's tough around the world. I mean, I feel for some of these publishers, you know, their, their countries are, uh, you know, on the verge of bankruptcy. You know, there's a, you know, high unemployment. I get it. Uh, but they're still selling the books. And, you know, I mean, come on, you know, I'm, I'm getting, you know, 12% on a hardcover. You know, they get all the rest, right? And the bookstores get some and they get some, and, you know, so help me out, right? Uh, so it's tough. I mean, there's a, there's a lot of, there are a lot of industries and businesses in which it's a lot easier to make a steady living. Um, you know, our hope, of course, is that the new book, you know, will make such a large splash. And again, James Cameron comes along and they make the Will Smith movie. Um, you know, I mean, it happens. I know guys, you know, they made movies out of oh, yes, TV series out of their books. So it totally happens. But I mean, it's a really, it's a really sketchy thing. I mean, sometimes, you know, they make the movie out of your book 12 years after the, after the book came out. Uh, sometimes it happens right away. Sometimes, um, sometimes, yeah. like in Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, you're dead <laughs> before the movie. Well, right. really well yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, worst, I mean, you know, again, sort of a good problem to have. But worst case scenario, you're Philip K. Dick, and you know, you you die a lonely, deranged, ill pauper, and then after you're gone, you know, your estate becomes like you know worth a billion dollars because they're just going crazy with your stuff. Now it's much. It's so much more fun to have have all those accolades and the money and the fans and the groupies and the the crazy coke orgies in your Laguna Beach you know mansion uh, while you're alive. I mean, it would be much cooler if that happened while you were alive. So you, uh, but, you still you know, get was, Jeff? You still get? Is, was Plague Year your first one? Was it? Yes, sir. So do you still get like a, a like a decent figure off that, or does it as time goes on? The, the kind of the, the slow down with the payments, you know, like they're not selling because just the they're old. Sure, because it's not it's not new and shiny. Well, I'll tell you, uh, Plague Year is in its sixth printing right now. Is it? Um, Congratulations! Yeah, six, well the numero done. six. 
So, I mean, that's, that's, pretty, that's a pretty good deal. I mean, a lot of first novels just sink without a trace because nobody's heard of you. Now, again, I know a lot of other pros, and I know pros, you know, like their first novels, and it's 15th printing. So, you know, I'm like, I'm like oh, well, I'm only in number six. You know, you're in number 15. Um, but, you know, but again, I'm actually, I mean, I'm actually doing better than average, which is sort of a sad statement on the, uh, you know, in the field, of, the field of writing. If I'm doing better than average and just barely scratching out a living, um, I mean, it's just kind of, it's just sort of sad. Um, but there's a lot of, I mean, there's a lot of new and exciting stuff happening in publishing these days. Hopefully it's all going to work out. See, I mean, you just kind of keep at it. Uh, you just say, you know, it's the patience and persistence. You got to sit down every day. And the one thing that I can control, of course, is the writing and the quality of the writing itself and, you know, and, and getting better at that. Uh, yeah, Plague, I mean, Plague Year is still selling. It's still in stores. It's still in stock. You know, they, they keep doing more printings. Uh, you know, my hope is that the new, the new book does well enough that, again, you know, more people go back. I mean, I'll tell you an anecdote. I mean, I know, I know James Rollins, you know, who's like the big, you know, mainstream, you know, science thriller guy. We're not best buddies, but we've had lunch. You know, we get the, I get to email him sometimes. Now, he's the kind of guy, his books are like in Costco. Hey, you're British again. They don't have Costco's in Britain, do they? Um, do they? I think Costco, they do. Yes, they do. Yes. Do they? Awesome, awesome for Costco. We're going to take over the world one country at a time. Um, you know, see, you know, Costco is like the giant, the giant warehouses where they have That's like right. just yes. piles and piles of your books. Um, and so what's happened with him, I mean, Jim is an extremely hard worker. And, you know, and he, and he, I mean, he's certainly paid his dues. I think he's on like his 15th or 16th book now. And his first three books were all paperback originals and, you know, did quite well. Um, and what they're doing now is they're re-releasing those books in like collector, you know, hardcover editions. All of them are in print. You can walk into any Barnes and Noble, um, you know, and just find them on the shelves. So, you know, again, he's, I mean, he's, you know, three or four steps up the ladder from where I'm at, maybe five or six. So, you know, but he's older than I am. Again, put in his dues, you know, has the, the talent, the skill, the patience, the persistence, et cetera, et cetera. So, I mean, it kind of goes both ways. It's, sometimes it's just a matter of being like the last person standing, the one person who's obsessive enough not to quit and give up. Um, but I mean, but it's tough. I mean, I have like the world's, you know, greatest wife. She couldn't, she could not be any more patient and supportive. Um, and again, you know, we all hope that we're having lunch with, you know, Will Smith or Sheila Booth here in the next couple of years at the, uh, you know, the worldwide release of Plague Year or the new novel that I can't even tell you the title of because it's so cool. Why, um, is there, is there a bit of a ban on, on you telling it or just, if you tell it, then you've let the cat out the bag and it'll soak up your kind of writing enthusiasm. Well, I'll, I'll tell you, um, when I was writing Plague Year, you know, again, it's, you know, the, you know, short high concept. It's about, you know, the nanotech plague. You have to be above 10,000 feet or 3,000 meters or you're dead. Really short pitch, right? Nano, nanotech prototype gets loose, kills all warm blood life below 10,000 feet. The whole time I was writing that book and then the even longer time while we were trying to sell that first novel – I was just living in absolute morbid fear that somebody else would write a book like that. It didn't have to be nanotech. It could be, I don't know, some, you know, weird oxygen dead zone that floats up out of the ocean or a virus or, you know, even aliens or just anything, any, any kind of book that was going to come out and have that same idea that you had to be in the mountains to survive. Um, and, and then while we were marketing, I'd already written Plague Year, but it took us almost two years to sell that book. And then once you sell it, it was another year and a half before it actually came out on the shelves. I mean, you know, the wheels in publishing turned very, very slowly. So during that time, um, Michael Crichton's Prey came out, That's which, right, forgive yes. me, I'm, uh, I'm going to say, yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a very clunky book. 
you know, I mean, it just it just was not a it was not a well written novel, and it was full of stupid characters doing stupid things, which just absolutely makes me nuts. You know, there's always the guy who panics and like runs out into the open, going, "I can't take it anymore." And then, of course, you know, the nanobots kill him horribly, and you're supposed to be like, "Oh God, it's so horrible." I mean, I, I remember one point in the book, like the hero is running from the nanotech swarmer, like he runs into a room and closes the door, and the nanobots are so dumb that they can't even get through the door; they just forget about him and they go away and terrorize somebody else. And you're like, "Come on!" You know, they got to come under the door and kill him too. I mean, the book was just full of stuff like that. But the whole point was, it was a Michael Crichton nanotech book, and I'm like, "Oh my God, everybody's going to think that I ripped him off." You know, my book was done before that came out. It wasn't like Michael Crichton was emailing me, you know, his plot synopsis. Um, you know, and I mean, and this, neither of these were by far the first, you know, nanotech plague books ever. I mean, Greg Bear was doing it way back in the day before he even is even called nanotech, right? But the whole idea was there was that prominent book out. And so what I've learned is, I mean, I really, I really keep my ideas close to the vest because, I mean, you know, I'll say it, they're cool ideas. And again, I, I know you, Tony. I know you'll go home and you'll sit down at your desk with your Hugo and you'll be like, man, that is a cool idea. I bet I could write that book faster than Jeff because he only, he only writes 15,000 words a day, right? Jeff only writes six to eight pages a day. And if I, I get, like, if I get me hero to run through the door and shut the door, then that, I've won. They the, can't get him. <laughs> Well, see, but if, if you if you write books like that, you can write fourteen pages a day. <laughs> or I remember, like I remember, like his like the, the character's wife was like a doctor who worked in a nanotechnology development department. And as the book began to unfold, you know, we were realizing that something very strange was happening and that people were dying and people were infected. And the hero never put it together that maybe his wife was involved. Because, you know, like, dude, she's a doctor who works in nanotechnology research, you know, you know, like, open your eyes. But if you, I mean, if you write books like that where there's just a bunch of dumb people doing dumb things, I think it's easier to write. I don't know. So I know how you are, Tony. You'd run home, write your dumb people doing dumb things book, and it would be an immediate bestseller. I mean, let's, right? let's, talk, it, let's talk about Crichton. And, I mean, because I honestly loved him at the beginning. And like you say, when it's that, that kind of came out, that just lost me. You know, with Andromeda Strain and, and books like that. You know, I was just like, sure. love it. I was loving. And what was the the old-fashioned one he did on, like, the re- like a railway or something? He did. Uh, you know, and I'll, I'll tell you that I actually, I mean, I actually stopped reading. I mean, I, again, I hate to, I hate to knock the guy. He was one of my early inspirations. I mean, I grew up reading books like the Andromeda Strain, and he was always really, really good at generating, you know, big ideas. And I read State of Fear, which again was full of like dumb people doing dumb things. Where you're like, you're like, it was just, just stupid stuff would happen, and the people would just sort of ignore it, you know, or the clues would all be there, and the hero would just sort of walk by them, bumbling on the idea that it was, you know, a much more tension-filled experience for the reader. You're like, but this isn't, this doesn't make me feel full of tension. It's not a thriller. I'm like, this guy's just stupid. Um, I also have, I have next on my uh, next is the next in my to read stack. I just haven't gotten to it yet. Um, but I remember really like, like timeline, airframe, you know, uh, sphere, all this stuff. It's just great high concept stuff. It's easy to pitch, you know, it sells well. Uh, and that's awesome. I mean, that's awesome for him. I mean, I, you know, I can't, I can't knock his success. I mean, I wish I was half as successful as Michael Crichton was, you know, in, in his heyday. Um, well, what was I going to say? I had some beautiful point. Oh yeah. Time. I mean, timeline, you know, was basically a science fiction story. I mean, it wasn't just like a science thriller. I mean, it really was science fiction. I mean, in what way is time travel not a genre idea? 
Um, but again, it was couched as the mainstream thriller. But for people, you know, like you and I, Hugo award-winning Tony C. Smith, who you know grown up in the field and the genre, reading all the classics and stuff, you read a book like Timeline, you're know, like, this is just stupid, and it's just full of stupid stuff happening. You're like like the the one mercenary who you know gets an arrow in his chest and then staggers back through the time portal. Of course, he has a hand grenade in his hand, and he drops it, and it blows up the whole control room, and then our heroes are trapped back in you know back in time. You're, you're like you're like, come on. My, what was best. even what was even worse than the book was that film. Oh, bloody! Oh, no, I know. You know what? I actually, I actually, I don't remember why I saw it, but I saw it. And again, I'm just I'm like, I'm like, God. You know, but it, but it, but it's but it's a it was a, he was a franchise. You know, just like Philip K. Dick has become a franchise. You just make movies out of their books, and it does well because it's just it's a familiar brand name. People know what to expect, and that's fine. Again, I wish you know, I wish I had you know. A quarter of, of that, and it success. was always. I tell you what, it was always like a cliche as well. You'd always have, like, say, the black procession of cars, or like, you know, like the vans with like the tinted windows streaming down. You know, all full of like black suited agents, and it was like, oh man, no, 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 terrible. Yeah. So, but, I mean, but, but people people respond to that. I mean, people do want the familiar and the the easy stuff. I mean, I'll, I'll tell you one of the things that I'm worried about right now with the book I'm working on is that is it too complex? I don't think it's complex. Um, but I worry that, you know, I worry that, you know, you know, reviewers and critics and, and the audience and stuff will think that it's too complex. I mean, there are people who thought play here was too complex. It's really not. It's about a bunch of people trapped in a mountain. They're trying to run from one mountain top to the other. And they're, you know, they're trying to get to the, the lost secret lab to recover the secrets. I mean, it's just basic thriller material. Uh, I mean, you can never, you know, you can never please all the people all the time. Um, but so as the, you know, as the, as a working pro now, these are the things that, you know, that I wrestle with. Um, how am, how ambitious do you want to make the story? How challenging do you want to make the characters? Uh, one of the things that I've learned, I mean, a lot of people didn't like the whole Plague Year trilogy because the heroes, um, you know, they're all covered with scars and they're murderers and they're, they're, I mean, they're pretty unhappy people. I mean, they're all horribly traumatized by the end of the world. Uh, but I was just trying to write the, I was just trying to write the book the way that I thought would make sense. I mean, you don't have five billion people dead and the only, the only survivors are feeding on each other because there just isn't any other food. And you don't have, you know, there's not the Mary Poppins version of Plague Year. You just can't do it if, if, you know, if you want to have any semblance of realism at all. But I mean, I, to, the, to this day, I still get fan mail from people saying, you know, hey, I really like the books, but I couldn't get into the characters or, or I get hate mail. Or people, you know, post the reviews on their blogs and stuff saying, you know, oh, it was a great idea, but the execution was awful because I just couldn't care about the characters. And I get that. You know, I, I'm like, I'm like, well, you're right. I mean, my heroes are like a bunch of, you know, murdering cannibals. Um, you know, okay, I'm with you. Uh, but for, you know, for me personally, if if the choice was between Tony, if the choice was between me whacking you in the head with a shovel and eating you to keep my family alive, or me suggesting to my family that we just lay down and gently die in the snow, I mean, dude. I'd, I'd hit you with the Hugo. I'd hit you with the Hugo, and we would roast you up, baby, and I would eat you. I would eat you. I mean, it's not even a question. It's, it's like it's like the life of my family or the life of some you know some wacky podcasting award winning maniac. Um, and you, know, you would and, keep the Hugo as well, and not tell anybody. Yeah. Oh well, right. Yeah, yeah no, it would, it would be my weapon of choice. And and so you know, I mean that that was the scenario. I mean, again, once you once you accept the premise of Plague Year, there's really only a few ways that it's going to play out. But again, I've had people email me and said, "Oh, I love the book, and I got into it, but it was so horrible. I don't know if I could do that." And I, you know, and you know, and I mean, it's great to get fan. I always engage them. I'm like, well, you know, but what's the option? You know, the option is that you just lay down and die. I mean, there, there isn't, there isn't anywhere to go. There isn't any food above ten thousand feet. It's just snow and rock. 
Um, you know, and so, and so I mean, these are the kind of things that, you know, again, some sort of stuff I walked away with, with David Brin, you want your heroes to be heroic. That's just what people are conditioned to expect. I mean, and it's, it's a story, it's fiction. So you need to, you know, you need to try and find your way out of that to make your heroes as likable and accessible as possible, no matter what they're forced to do. And sometimes they have to take like that big moral stand. No, I would rather lay down and die than hit Tony in the head with his Hugo and cook him to save my family. Uh, and then I don't, I don't know where that leads to story you know i don't know where i don't know where plague year would be it, it leaves me i could walk away <laughs> yeah, right. yeah no you you see you would then you would kill me i mean at some point somebody somebody gets hungry enough to do that um but so i mean i you know I'm, I'm still writing like these big crazy you know science thrillers you know with the exploding helicopters and the plot twists and the betrayals and the romance and the politics and all this great stuff um but the book i'm working on now again i'm trying to do it as a little much more mainstream and so it can't be quite so complex and so threatening, you know, to your, you know, say so your, you know, your average reader, uh, whoever that is. But by the same token, I don't want to dumb my stuff down, you know, and, and I want it to, I want it to be challenging. I mean, I want the book and I want you to be like, oh man, what a cool idea that was. I'm going to be thinking about that for a week. And oh man, here's another crazy idea in chapter three. You know, I'll be thinking about that for a week. You know, man, this guy's a super genius. I should buy all of his books. Uh, but there's that, there's that fine balance between, you know, between being too dark and too complex and too intellectual and then being too vanilla. And so I'm trying to, uh, I'm trying to gently, gently stride that line, Tony. When, when, when do you think it's due out then? So when can we look out for this one? Well, I will, uh, I'd love to come back on the show and tell you all about it. My hope is, my hope is that, you know, uh, I, it's funny too, because originally when I started writing, I just wanted to have a book on the shelves before I died because, you know, I grew up as a serious bookworm and I just wanted to play too. Well, now I've gotten, I mean, this is like my job now. Um, and so, and then I, and I've learned like the last, you know, three or four years have been a huge eye opener for me. And so now I know all about production cycles, you know, and galleys and page proofs and, you know, the, the, the pre-marketing and the, you know, the buy-in from the chains and all this kind of stuff. Um, I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you that this book is taking longer than I thought it would. It's also way better than I thought it was going to be, which is really, really nice. Uh, but it's taking longer than I thought it was going to. At this point, you know, I think realistically the production cycle, it, it should still be out in 2011. My concern is that it's going to be out, you know, cause it's nice to have a book out every year. Uh, my concern is that it's going to be like the end of 2011, but just in time for your Christmas shopping, right? Tony? Exactly. Exactly. Um, so, yeah. So yeah, we'll see. I mean, they could they could put a. I mean, I'm I'm well over halfway done. And when you're over halfway done writing the book, you're actually three quarters of the way home because it's the first part of the book that's the hardest, and the research, and the interviewing, and then making all the characters and the background and the science all come to life in the opening of the book. I mean, you have to hook the reader from the beginning, and so those opening chapters have to just be absolutely, you know, exquisitely perfect. Um, so, I mean, we could get a new production cycle right now. I mean, I don't know. The book could be a, another B trade, a summer blockbuster. Wouldn't that be nice? Um, it, but yeah, I mean, it's it's funny. I mean, that's that's not that's not up to me. I mean, I'm just the guy who writes the book, right? What do I know? Um, you know, so they're they're the they're the people who you know publish and you know promote and release and back them and all that kind of stuff. So yeah, it's not really up to me. E Jeffrey Carlson, let's hope some big film company comes and buys up all your stuff, and you can come and fly me out. I'll bring I'll bring over my Hugo to show you it. <laughs> Fantastic! You bring you bring all of your Hugos. That's right, because you know by then you'll have like oh, three yeah, or God. five or exactly. No, sir. Thank you for letting me ramble on. You can tell I've had a lot of coffee today. Caffeine is my stimulant of choice. Hey, the best and one. This, I mean, this is this is. Go ahead. No, I'm saying good, good choice there. Nice, strong coffee. Yeah, exactly. Good, good drug of choice. Well, I mean, this is why I can write 500 page manuscripts because it's blah 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 blah. 
That's what happens. Well, listen, Jeff, you take good care of yourself. Sure, I will. I appreciate it. I will talk to you soon, and you, uh, you love that Hugo a little bit for me, okay? Look after yourself, then. I will. Thanks, man. This story is narrated by the one and only Mike Boris. Mike, what can I say? Thank you so much. Week in, week out, you're delivering some fantastic narrations. Go over to Mike Boris Audio and check out his work there. What can I say? It's one of the reasons why we won that Hugo. Fantastic narrations. Mike, big hugs, lad. So the Starship Sofa and her oral delights is very proud to present. Meme by Jeff Carlson. There's no such thing as a part-time job that is both meaningful and well-paid. Most aren't either. Including his stints as a gas jockey during high school, Alan Lilly has held 19 positions in at least seven separate fields, so his expectations are as low as mud. Driver, pressman, salesman, waiter, phone rep, cashier. He rarely stays more than 12 months, and several times he's quit after one shift. He's not a slacker, thief, or troublemaker. He's a musician. He has better things to do. Processing overflow and night drops at Fast Photo offered neither purpose nor money. What it did provide was the opportunity to listen to his iPod and think, alone, while earning enough to cover his rent. He bought groceries and beer with the money he made off his music, all themes for corporate presentation videos and CD-ROMs so far, at no better than $300 a shot. But Alan believes that cream inevitably rises to the top, and that he is cream. He's only 32. The 100 prints wouldn't normally have caught his eye. Most people who use cheap film take shots of their friends standing in a row and smiling. The rest snap pictures of their cats or cars. These photographs are of a computer printout marked only in one narrow vertical column. Two days ago, Alan underbid an iGames.net spec assignment, and he spent every spare moment since then reworking Mozart into heavy metal for their new Blammer sequel. Typical crap, not much of a challenge. But the IVS 550 photo processor is an incredibly diligent percussionist, and the endless 4-4 beat of its print stacker disrupts his concentration again and again. He's staring at the ceiling when the glare of white turns his head. Even black-and-white photos aren't typically so bleak. He strides over, drumming his pen against his leg, to make certain the 550 is operating correctly. It is. The entire roll of 36 prints is close-up after close-up, of the strange text. Alan thinks it looks like music. The nude pictures on the next roll do not distract him as he stands right there at the processor, wondering over handfuls of the unusual shots. For the first few nights of his job, he considered skin shots a perk, but it's a rare set of jugs that holds his attention now. Most people are too fat or pale or hairy, and everyone seems to use the same four poses. Every job has its unique benefits and tortures, of course. Often they are one and the same. Working phones in the classified ads department, it was the idiots who wanted to complain about the delivery boy. Why are you calling me? Alan asked them, at first with a smile, at last with deadly boredom. Running a cash register at 7-Eleven in the bus station, it was the lonely folks who stayed to chat, sometimes even through a wall of security glass. At first he thought he found gems of wisdom in their late-night ramblings. At last he realized it was all desperate clichés. Alan is not a people person. Human beings are mean and stupid and greedy too much of the time. He prefers the clean, evocative world of music. 
All that Alan has ever wanted is to own and be owned by that beauty, to wield the magic. Plus, it would be nice to be neck-deep in money and chicks, or even ankle-deep. It wouldn't take much to free him. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. From the crappy jobs that are wasting half of his life. One big break, one hit, one catchy original combination of sound. The bizarre text in the photographs consists of just two spidery shapes, one stout, the other slim, but they're arranged in no less than seven angles as well as three left-middle-right positions, like chords, sharp, normal, flat. But if the text is music, it's composed in two-five time, as best he can tell, which is almost meaningless. Is it an opera score? It's definitely mega-ballad length, running for thirty-plus pages, although at least two of those are repetitions. A chorus. The bass line is sporadic, but Alan's starting to hear it in his head, which makes up for the lack. Why is it in code? And given that it must be stored on a computer, why take pictures rather than printing out more copies? The logic of it is compelling, and Alan shuts down the IVS 550 so that its chatter won't distract him as he sketches out the beginnings of a translation. He knows he'll fall behind and hear about it from his boss if he leaves the processor off for more than a few minutes. But so what? By his count, he's quit five times as often as he's been fired. When the hourly rage is just a buck or three over minimum, there's always something better. His last girlfriend complained that he had the attention span of a gerbil. And Alan agreed, at least that each new job hunt was tedious and painful, but he's learned that it's important to stay positive in order to stay productive. When he starts worrying, when he's forced to borrow money from his folks, he finds that his music abandons him, which only deepens his depression. A wicked feedback cycle. Alan tries to take pride in his checkered resume. It's proof that he's not just a cog in the nine-to-five machine, that he's using it rather than being used. The music industry is crowded and vicious, perhaps worse than acting, writing, painting— Average ears are capable of perceiving no more than a few dozen distinct musical notes, or more than a handful of truly different styles. 
And in the few brief decades since recording technology began preserving every effort, great and small, almost all of the pleasing combinations of sound have been done, over and over. Most of the unpleasant ones have been done repeatedly as well. At first the Internet offered new venues, buyers, and stages, but it also quickly became a vast garbage dump into which every copycat and tinier poured their knockoffs. Alan's not above borrowing concepts or inspiration from his favorites, Christ Butter, the Beatles, but he labors to make each composition fresh. He has fought for and earned each of his few professional credits and put only his best songs on the two websites promoting his work, but it's near impossible for any single voice to rise above the global mob. What it takes to stand out is a completely new style. The strange text in the photographs is definitely music, Alan decides. Strange music. He tries to give it voice, coughing through the unique tempo. Da, da, wa, wa, da. Very strange. As if someone combined bagpipe marches with reggae, wind noise and dashes of punk. Its clash and contrast are unspeakably lovely. Da, wa, da, dee. He finds himself roaming his one-bedroom apartment like a slow-motion pinball, flopping down on the couch to continue his translation, rising to dig through the refrigerator, the whispering in his head escaping him in wet dog shakes of his body and hands. Daddy, da-da! He finds himself mumbling, always mumbling, water bubbling from his lips under the hot spray of the shower, flat echoes surrounding him as he paces in the short entry hall. Da-wa, da-da! He finds himself in bed, lurching from deep but restless sleep, the phone ringing. The answering machine speaks, his boss furious. Apparently he left the fast photo door unlocked. Alan is exhausted, damp all over with sweat, his belly glued with semen. For the first time in twenty years he's had a wet dream. But it was a nightmare. He remembers thick, conflicting emotion, anger, longing, joy, coupled with random sensations like hunger and heat, as well as cascading memories of being a teenager, a child, and, insanely, an old man heavy with arthritis. He pushes out of the twisted sheets and hurries back to the shower, and again water bubbles from his lips as he begins to chant the magic sounds. Wada, wada. For the first time he feels a touch of fear. The name on the deposit envelope is Wendy Dannenbring. Originally, Alan was planning to observe her, meet her, at Fast Photo when she came in for her film. But there isn't anything there for her anymore. The prints, the negatives, and the deposit envelope all came home with him. And he can't wait. Caught by the warm yellow dawn, sitting on a frigid bench for the crosstown bus, Alan examines the envelope again. Her address is not in an upscale neighborhood. So in that respect, at least, she's like him. Still struggling. For the moment. Wendy Dannenbring is about to knock the world off its feet, and he thinks he can help. He thinks he can improve her ballad by underscoring it with a more normal bass. Good reviews from the critics are wonderful, but if an audience doesn't understand what they're hearing, they won't come back for more. Da-da-da-da-wa. He imagines he's found his perfect match. She obviously understands the power of solitude given that this creation must have required years of intense labor. Yet she's also passionate and starving for intimacy. It's all in the music. Dreaming over her tight, spiky cursive, he thinks of his few lovers, a teacher who earned his first crush, a favorite, untouchable cousin who mercilessly flaunted herself for years and once let him surprise her by the pool with her top off. He thinks of women he's only hoped for, 
Daydreams. Gentle nurturers. The loud arrival of the bus shocks him like an alarm clock. So does discovering, as he rises, that he has an erection. Fear spikes through his heart again. A sagging old dumpling of a woman opens the door only as far as the security chain allows. Alan stares at her, gives the apartment number a double-take. Her eyes, bright with anxiety, bruised by sleep deprivation, sweep over him and past his shoulder as if expecting someone else. He holds up the deposit envelope. Her eyes widen, then slide to his face. Whatever she sees there does not seem to lessen her anxiety, but she raises one small hand to free the security chain. Wendy Dannenbring's place would have been cliché grandma, except that the frilly white doilies on the sofa and end tables are visible only where the massive drifts of paper have been organized into stacks. And it's unusual for people her age, the last of the pre-boomer generation, to be high-tech. She has three computers. Oddly, all are unplugged and two have been disassembled, the printer stacked upside down in a corner of the small room. Filthy, crusted dishes sit among the paperwork. Alan stands motionless while Wendy sits and fusses through the photos. Should have known, she mutters. He waves at all the paper. Why did you take pictures? To see if it would stay the same. What? Disappointment is not uncommon in Alan's life, but this wacky old bat could not be farther from what he'd hoped for. The shock of her temporarily quiets the song in his head. Should have known better, Wendy says again, still talking to the pictures or maybe the floor, rocking gently. I thought it was all automated now. She stops and looks at him. Do you know what this is? Can you understand it yet? It's brilliant, beautiful. Who wrote it? It's extraordinarily dangerous. Hope leaps up in him like fire. It wasn't you? Wendy's gaze lifts up, weary and scared and determined. I'm not sure, she says slowly. What the hell did... Oh, I typed it. That much I'm sure of. Her eyes have not left his face. Are you dreaming? He tries not to flush or look away. Me too, she says, her deliberate measured tones infected now with a hint of panic. Fantasies, real life, sex, hope, death, everything mixed together non-stop. That's why this is so incredible. Good music should make you feel and think and remember. Music? Of course. Are you crazy? Then Ellen laughs. What am I saying? Obviously you're... This is computer code. Binary. He shakes his head and steps away from her. You're being read, she said. You're being learned. You're crazy. Ellen starts towards the door. Wait! Please! Wendy drags a revolver from between two of the sofa cushions and thrusts it at him. Please! They remain like that for several moments, Wendy's small hand steady despite the revolver's weight, Alan staring into its short, dark barrel. His eyes flicker between it and her face as he tries to listen. My husband Richard was a neurologist who wanted to improve human intelligence by improving memory. Words fall out of her in a rush. Three years ago, he got sidetracked by the nature of dreams, which current science thinks are byproducts of the mind organizing each day's experiences. He thought maybe... He wanted to control the dream state and tried biofeedback drugs. 
Finally, he created a universal program that would redirect the mind in organizing short-term memory more efficiently. She pauses long enough that Alan considers running, but the mess will slow him, make him a target. Words spill from her in a rush again. One of his test subjects went insane in her isolation tank, and the others strangled on a contact wire. Intentionally. Two days later, Richard jumped off a roof. I thought, because of the disgrace, because they were going to ban him from... Wendy rocks and rocks on her cluttered sofa, covering both her ears as if trying to drown out her own voice. Two months ago, she said, when I had to move to this apartment, I found some of his programs in our PC. Artificial intelligence, maybe. Certainly it's self-replicating. Changing. I first noticed it when it piggybacked on an email to my friends. It was trying to get out. She stops rocking and glances up from the floor. We were all very lucky. The net server software scrambled it into meaningless gibberish. Ellen tried to say something, anything, but his eyes were still locked on the revolver. It did get into me, and it's gestating. Wendy hugs herself with her free hand. Her voice is almost a whine. It's using everything I know to evolve, controlling me. I wipe magnets over the hard drive, but catch myself rewriting it from memory. I burn stacks of notes and then find the most recent version still in my desk. The photos. Fortunately, I'm not very educated. It hasn't benefited much. But it might not need to change a lot more to find a form that's easily communicable. If it does, if it reaches the world... Her voice is genuinely sad. I can't let it have whatever it might learn from you. Alan leaps across the table, banging his knee into a stack of paper, slipping, clawing. Wendy fires. She misses, barely, the muzzle flash scorching his cheek and deafening his left ear. He slaps her hand aside as the revolver goes off again. This bullet scratches his right shoulder. The third punches a wet hole through her cheek as they struggle. Alan barely remembers to grab the pictures and the deposit envelope before he escapes. Home again, he composes for nineteen hours, burning, surging, stopping only to suck down half a gallon of water. The slapdash whirling collage inside him easily overpowers the aches of his damaged ear and bleeding shoulder. And eagerness mutes his fear. This is like nothing he's ever known. Orgasm, pot dreams, the normal thrill of creation. This is the unfettered confidence of a diving eagle. He catches himself in the moment before finishing his long song and posting it on the net. Like a man at the edge of a building, breathing hard, blinking, he recalls Wendy's wretched face, her dry voice. Can he stop himself? It's too beautiful. He presses, enter. Adrenaline courses through his limbs, but fades as nothing happens. Then email returns to him from all over the world, terribly fast. He double-clicks on several, and his song pours from the computer speakers, altered, added to, accompanied by something more. A fearsome storm explodes within Alan. Other minds, other perspectives and personal histories, different languages, new bodies, a prism of humanity, desire, energy, industriousness, madness and perversion. The darkness is just as strong as the light. His physiology allows only a few instants of roaring input before he collapses onto the floor. Seventy-one individuals across the planet died of cardiac arrest or cerebral events.
Thirty-nine more are smothered, burned, or were electrocuted as they lay unconscious. Another one hundred and four committed suicide in the minutes immediately following, unable to face what had been reflected back at them. They all live on inside us now. Millions of us experiencing the merging, millions of us everywhere were changed. The first crude version of the meme had been too much for isolated people to withstand, like Richard Dannenbring's test subjects, and later his wife. Yet it transformed into something truly majestic, and it echoed back and forth through a sea of minds. It became an actual collective unconscious, if only for several seconds. Here and there a few delicate souls were deeply wounded, yet many more agitated ones were calmed. Together we found balance, empathy, the essence of peace. But we didn't find as much of ourselves as we'd like. The wars in West Africa and Eastern Europe continue, as do the politically induced famines in Central Africa and North Korea. Not enough minds were awakened in those places. Yet we know that our immortal union will be repeated and spread further in years to come as we study and recreate the phenomenon. As investigator of the so-called explosion, Alan Lilly finally discovered the fame and small fortune that he had long sought. But neither seem important to him now, in comparison to our love of the human song. Starship Suvaz, Volume 2, has some writers in there, some fantastic writers. I'll give you a list, just who is in. Jason Sanford, Paul de Philip Ward, Jeff Carlson, John Kessel, Tobias Bakel, Mary Rosenblum, Lucius Shepard, Ted Kuzmatka, Pat Cadigan, Neil Gaiman, Adam Roberts, Nancy Cress, Sean Williams, Corey Doctor, Jeff Vandermeer, Larry Santuro, Stephen R. Donaldson, Gwyneth Jones, and the man you're about to hear now sitting the interrogation, China Mabel. So, Starship Sofa asks, China Mabel, are you a science fiction writer? Sure, among other things, if people want. Yeah, fine. Tell me about your childhood. Uh, I was very happy. Northwest London, geeky, um, very formative, I think. How did you get started in science fiction genre? I, like a lot of people, it wasn't so much getting started in it, it was not giving up on it. Loads and loads of kids love this kind of thing, and then a reasonable number of them stop being into it as they get older. It seems to me that what happens is that those of us who are into SF as we're, old, as we're adults, it's not so much that we get into it, it's that we never get out of it. Which single science fiction writer most influenced your own style? I think writers are very bad judges of who influences them. Um, so I can give all kinds of names, but I don't think I'm the right person to ask. Which book by another author do you wish you'd written? None, because then I wouldn't be able to read them and not know what happens. What would be the one question you would ask a science fiction writer? Ooh, the one question I would... Well, you know what, it would depend which science fiction writer, I think. For what reason do you write science fiction in preference to other classes of literature? Because I, when I'm writing, don't sustain interest unless there is something impossible or weird in whatever it is I'm writing. What one aspect of science fiction writing is the most difficult? Uh, for me, the most difficult aspect of writing is 
um, just follow through. It's just a question of organizing your time and making sure that you just carry on through. Ideas are easy, I think. Um, that might sound really annoying, but I don't think ideas on the whole are the problem. I think most people have many more ideas than they think they do. I think it's follow through that's tricky. Does it get any easier? Yes, it does get easier, but at the same time, it also gets harder because as you go on, hopefully you get better. And part of getting better is about getting more self-critical. So you, it gets easier to write on one level, but it gets harder because you're much more self-critical and um, attempting to do bigger things and good things as you go on. So, um, so <laughs> dialectically, yes and no. Describe your daily work and day. I have no daily working day. My days vary enormously. I might not write anything for days and days at a time and then spend 18 hours doing nothing but typing. It just varies too much. I'm always rather stunned when other people do have typical days. What's the strangest thing you've ever done while researching? The strangest thing I have ever done while researching was probably to go through uh, a fairly severe rigmarole to find a way of becoming part of a website which allowed me to download um, the specifications and blueprints of a number of very high-tech oil rigs. Completely pointless, of course. Do you think science fiction as a genre is different from other genres? Yes, I do. I think genres have specificity. And I think there's nothing wrong with specificity. I think the problem that happens a lot in our culture is that specificity is confused with hierarchy. So I think there is definitely something about the fantastic field in general about writing, which is predicated on something impossible being true that is different from other kinds of writing. For a lot of people, that then translates into uh, a kind of gradation. And I don't think that second step is warranted at all. What do you consider the chief value of science fiction? I think the chief value of science fiction is the same as any other kind of uh, literature worth its salt. It's a, you know, um, it's a, a, an interesting, engaging cultural me meditation on, um, you know, uh, us and our society. I think um, I think the answer is really no no different than it would be for any other um, artistic or literary movement. I think there are certain things science fiction can do better than so-called realist fiction, but I don't think it's, um, I, don't, I, I, think it's I think it's all about it's all about being in the world and reflecting on being in the world. Has science fiction ever disappointed you? <laughs> science fiction, has it ever disappointed me? Well, um, uh, Many of its representatives have disappointed me tremendously all the time. I, I'm very, very, very let down by the vast majority of science fiction movies I see um, by a reasonable number of science fiction books. Um, I think it might be a little bit unfair to blame uh, a genre for the, um, the for, for the shenanigans of its adherents, however. Is there still new ground to be covered in science fiction literature? Well, yes and no. I mean, I think there's new ground in the sense that I'm not remotely concerned about, you know, literature dying because of repetition, because um, that's been the case for, you know, 
years and years and years and years and years. And, you know, repetition is is not merely the endless recursion of the same. Doing the same thing in different contexts means you're doing a different thing. And there are ways of riffing off stuff that's been done, very old ideas, and trying to do new things with it. So um, I, I'm not remotely concerned that in some way uh, literature in general or science fiction in particular have finished. China Mayville, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. So we come on to Jason Sanford's serial, or the, the story that's going to be turned into a three-part serial, Sublimation Angels. And Jason Sanford, out there today, you know, one of the best imaginative writers out there working. He is just, some of his ideas are just staggering, you know what I mean? And I think the one thing why I like Jason's work, or there's many reasons why I like it, but the one... When you read it, you're there with him. I know that sounds a bit of a cliche, but literally you are. You're there with this kind of protagonist or this story. You know, this man can, has, and has the ability to, to put you in, right in the story. And that's such a lovely thing. Do you know what I mean? I read so many short stories, you know, and yes, some of them are good and some of them are, you know, okay. And, but some of them, you know, there's not many rarely get you involved and get you right in with that like a short story and get you hooked and just you just love the atmosphere Jason Sanford can do this Jason Sanford is gonna this guy's tipped to be one of the best I think out there there's a few writers who I really admire at the moment Hanu Rajani Jason Sanford and Will McIntosh do you know what I mean those are kind of the hot writers for me at the moment and like I say Jason Sanford with his imagination and his pure ability to just kind of put you in, even if it's a short story, put you in that short story and just live and breathe and smell this kind of work he's doing. It's fantastic. This is Jason Sanford's Sublimation Angels, part one. It is narrated by Josh Roseman, not the trombonist, the other one, who is a writer and web developer living in Georgia, USA. He's had stories published on the Drabblecast and the Junestief. His latest story, Section 3A, is scheduled to be published this month in Big Pulp. His voice is heard most often on Junestief, usually in the role of an authoritative figure. I'll put a link on to Josh's site. Josh, this is a lovely narration, do you know what I mean? I'm certainly going to hopefully get Josh again on. Big story this to kind of take on board and he's just come out excellent. So, thank you Josh. So the Starship Sova and her oral delights is very proud to present... Sublimation Angels by Jason Sanford Alna and I stood on Yur's Mirrodin surface, taking a breather in our sweat-stenched slush suits. The hole we'd dug through the frigid reflective ash smoked a haze of oxygen toward the blue and orange maw of the Crab Nebula, which hung in the sky near our planet's distant mother star. Across the vacuum black, countless aurals shifted the star field into a mnemonic roigy biv of circles and exclamations. As I watched the alien balls of energy fly by, I remembered something my brother said shortly before he died. How our skies, and our whole existence, were merely the backdrop on which the aurals played their indecipherable games. While I rested, sore from digging in my ill-fitting suit, I watched a yellow aural. The illuminated ball shot toward the horizon, its parallel reflection flashing across the planet's mirror surface. The yellow aural and its reflection flew closer and closer until they merged at the bottom, an illogical sight which shoved my eyes to vertigo and my stomach toward vomit, a fatal thing to do in a sealed pressure suit. 
to calm myself, I cranked my suit's TikTok ventilator, blowing scrubbed clean air across my face. I then scraped away more of the super-insulating ash with my ice cleaver, revealing the frozen light blue oxygen below. Soon, an even larger cloud of air bubbled around us. Alna grabbed my shoulder. Mom's mad this, she shouted, her shout carrying as weak whispers because of our touch. I gave a thumbs up. Moms were always mad when anyone messed with the Arl's precious mirror ash, which kept the oxygen and the rest of the frozen atmosphere from returning to gas as Yur's eccentric orbit took us back toward the planet's mother star. Alna chunked her ice cleaver aside and kneeled reverently. When I didn't join her in prayer, she grabbed my suit's ventilator crank and pulled me to my knees. Like many low kids, she believed clouds of air like this were sublimation angels, or the spirits of those denied rebirth. By releasing enough air into the world, you freed the soul of anyone you loved. In this case, the angel and prayers were for Amare, Alna's husband, and my twin brother. Pump me up, chicka! Alna shouted slash whispered when she finished praying. I detached the backup hose from her suit, attached it to our spare Oxymix canister, and cranked her pressure to four times normal. After checking that the partial pressure of the nitrogen in her suit was enough to hit narcosis, the needle dial showed three bar, I ran my own suit through the same procedure, then lay back in the ash and stared at the sky. Above us, a red and purple aural lit multiple tracers as it blossomed into a flower of light, creating the rainbow petals of six brand new aurals. Alna rapped on my helmet and grinned. I feel Amare, she said, tears dotting her face mask. I laughed. This was silly. My dead brother wasn't bubbling into the sky. Instead, frozen air naturally sublimated when the light from Yur's mother star hit it. But before I could say anything, movement from the mirror landscape snagged my eye. To my surprise, there stood Amare, buck naked, and waving at me. My twin looked impossibly thin, his body and arms reaching for the horizon as he smiled. The nitrogen narcosis caused me to imagine, for the briefest of moments, that I was the one standing on the surface, that my own body waved at me. Then I remembered the moms, grinding Amare's body to kibble and dumping him in the decay pit. I moaned. As if to distract me from such ugly memories, Amare pointed to a passing aural. Even though enough rationality survived my narcosis to know my dead brother couldn't be standing naked on a world so cold its atmosphere long ago froze and fell from the sky, I smiled. Alna touched her helmet against my helmet, and we heard each other giggle. For the first time since being born on this cursed world, I felt like I truly, truly belonged. I am stupid. Amare was smart. Of the expedition's 2,000 people, he was chosen. I was not. Everyone knows this. The smart boy and his dumb brother. The special one. And the one who fears the Aurals. But it shouldn't have been so. I was born a mom. Born to know things. And I do. I know we aren't meant to live on a frozen world. I know the tech our ancestors created for us 600 years ago. All the suits and cleavers and TikTok mechanisms keeping us alive are wearing down. I know the Aurals are not our friends. I know all this. But because I wasn't chosen like Amare, no one listens. Amare and I were born in the highest level of the cave, in as much heat and good air as our expedition could give. While low kids raised their children in the lower cave's cold, Amare and I never knew this deprivation when we were young. We only knew that our mother and father loved us, and if we climbed down the cave's spiral tunnels, we wore clumsy pails of frozen oxymix around our neck. 
The insulated pails contained a tiny tick-tock heater, and you cranked them every few minutes to smoke out the extra air needed to live. When we were ten, our parents led us to the surface for our ceremonial joining with the expedition. They sealed Amare and me in a tuber, a clear bubble used for emergency pressure drops. Once outside the airlock, I poked the bubble over and over, amazed that something so flimsy could keep our air and warmth inside. We walked awkwardly across the frozen surface to where a handful of other bubbles waited, each holding two kids from our age class. Amare, being Amare at even such a young age, whispered that this bubble was like all the expedition's dead technology. The slush suits, the cave, the rebreathers and heat exchangers, built for us long ago and still functioning with only minimal repairs. This tech might as well be magic, he said, because we sure can't create it anymore. I suppose he would have gone on like that, a ten-year-old babbling of things his brother didn't care about, but right then the burning ball of an aural flashed across the sky. No larger than the tuber Amare and I stood in, the indigo aural dipped for a moment before flying back toward the crab nebula, where it exploded into several smaller aurals, each spinning spirals across the star-burned blackness. Amare stared in amazement at the disappearing aliens. Heck, we all stared. But for Amare, it wasn't enough to simply see a beautiful sight. No, he had to understand. They're playing, he whispered. There's no logical reason for such displays, unless they're playing with us. I shrugged, having no way to know. But mother and father, touching our bubble with their slush suits, heard Amare's comment. Mother leaned over the tuber, until her face mask pushed the clear bubble in. Be quiet, she ordered nervously her voice tinny to what I now know was my first experience at suit-to-suit talking. And keep quiet when Big Mom starts the ceremony. Amare and I nodded, and I was suddenly aware only the thinnest of barriers separated us from a quick and cold death. Soon the bubbles were pushed together, so the clear surfaces touched, and we heard the other kids still laughing in amazement at the aurals. However, one age mate was quiet and merely glared at Amare. His name was Guntar. He was a big, nasty boy my brother had fought with numerous times. Guntar loved picking on low kids, something Amare refused to tolerate. Chica, Guntar whispered, she's gonna pop you. Who? I asked. Big Mom. She makes an example out of two kids at every ceremony, orders the enforcers to cut open their bubble, slice, bang, dead. My face paled and Guntar laughed. Amare started to tell Guntar to decay off, but right then Big Mom walked out of the airlock in her black spacesuit. Big Mom was tens of thousands of years old, with over six hundred of that spent on this planet, and her word was life or decay for everyone in the expedition. Before coming to this world, Big Mom had been an artificial intelligence, one of the numerous AIs who oversaw humanity's affairs. But in order to enter the oral system, she gave up that power and encased herself in a flimsy human body. Beside Big Mom stood three large enforcers in black suits, each holding a combat cleaver. One of the enforcers lowered her cleaver until it hovered a hand span above the bubble holding Amare and me. Behind us, Guntar made a soft popping sound with his mouth. He snickered when I grabbed Amare's hand. Big Mom stepped forward and placed her suited hands on the tubers so everyone heard her. "'You are privileged to be here,' she whispered in a majestic, harmonizing voice, which hinted so perfectly at her AI origins. 
This is the six hundredth and third year of our amazing voyage. You already know why we're on this planet, to learn about the Orals, to contact them. So far, we have failed. Perhaps you will succeed where we have not. As Big Mom fell back into the history we'd all studied, I yawned. We all knew the Orals were the only intelligent spacefaring species discovered so far by humanity. We also knew that each attempt by humanity and our AIs to either contact the Orals or expand into the systems they claimed resulted in the destruction of our ships and probes. Noticing my eyes glazing over, one of the enforcers kicked our bubble. I sat up straight, hoping Big Mom hadn't noticed. The Orals hate humanity's high technology, Big Mom said. That's why they attack us. But perhaps they're also receptive to coexistence. So here we are, on this frozen planet, presenting ourselves to the Orals in simple, unadorned peace. No technology but the most basic. No way to leave until this planet's eccentric orbit takes us back out of Oral space. Do they really want us here? Amare asked. The Orals, I mean. The silence of vacuum fell into Amare's question, although I heard Guntar snicker softly. Big Mom stared at Amare, and one of the enforcers raised his cleaver as if to slice open our tuber. Big Mom waved for him to stop. An innocence question, Big Mom said, placing her hands on our bubble alone. The short answer is yes. This is the oral home world. Long before humanity reached into space, the Orals pushed their homeworld out of its normal orbit, causing Yor to travel to the edge of this star's gravitational field and leave Oral territory for a brief period every five hundred years. A single message, one of the few we've received from the Orals, humbly offered us their home as a means to travel into their realm and meet them as equals. I thought of the power of the Orals, able to throw their home planet into a new orbit as if a toy, how they coated Yur with mirror ash once the atmosphere froze, preserving the world as easily as a ball of food thrown onto ice. Even though this didn't seem like a meeting of equals, I thanked Big Mom for telling us what we already knew. But Amare wasn't satisfied. He wanted to know why we hadn't left Oral space, since Yur's orbit was 500 years long, and we'd been here for more than six centuries. As his mouth opened to spout that deadly question, the guards shifted their tuber-cutting cleavers. I quickly kicked Amare. Please excuse my brother, I said to Big Mom. He's simply excited about the Arles. Amare glared at me as he rubbed his sore shin, then nodded agreement. With no more intruding questions, Big Mom ordered our bubbles spread across the mirror ash to see if the Arles would communicate with us. This had been attempted with every person born in our expedition for six hundred years, and in all that time, none of the Arles had taken the least interest in us. But that didn't stop the moms from trying again and again to gain the Arles' attention. So much for our meeting of equals. For a moment, nothing happened. A few random Arles arched through the sky. I glanced down at the mirrored surface to watch their reflections, causing my stomach to almost explode from vertigo. Gagging, I looked up in time to see a pink aural spin out of the sky. It fell scary fast, causing several startled enforcers to jump back. The ball of energy shot around the moms and veered right at our tuber, where it stopped. As I looked into the pure light of an aural, the vertigo of a moment before returned, as if instead of an aural I watched my own reflection dancing a jig while my body remained perfectly still. The aural hovered silently for a moment, then bumped our tuber gently even though the Arl didn't appear to be solid. 
Amare, again merely being Amare, reached out his hand and touched the thin bubble separating us from the alien. But where Amare wanted to touch the Aural, I wanted to get away. I could only think of the power of this damn thing, how they threw their homeworld across space, how they destroyed any high-tech which dared approach their system. But if the Aural noticed me clawing in panic against the back of the tuber, it didn't respond. It merely nuzzled against the bubble separating it from Amare's hand, rang like a ceramic chime, and spun silently back into the sky. And so Amare became the Aural's chosen one. Everyone celebrated that day. Moms, low kids, middle workers, even Big Mom couldn't wipe the smile from her face. Our first true contact with the Arles. Or, I should say, everyone celebrated but me. Back in our tiny bub, I cried in my mother's lap, told her our mission was stupid, 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 that we didn't belong on this world, that the Arles were evil. You should be happy for your brother, she said as she hugged me. This means a lot, not only to him, but to all of us. I wanted to scream, but instead I wiped my tears and said I understood. I then waited until Amare came back home and punched him in the stomach. Of course, the moms caught Alna and me. After only 15 minutes of nitrogen narcosis, our suit's tick-tock regulator valves clicked on and began venting the excess pressure, edging the hallucinations away as we slowly decompressed. I opened my eyes to see a massive cloud of oxygen boiling into the sky. Through the haze, I saw Alna hacking at the mirror ash with the cleaver, making the hole bigger, far bigger than it should be. I grabbed the cleaver from her and began to scrape mirror ash back over the oxygen. But it was too late. The moms had seen us. They marched across the mirror ash, small at first, their suits' dark lines wavering between original sky and reflected sky, stick-figure mirages growing larger and larger the closer they came. I thought about running, but they were between us and the cave's airlocks. Neither Alna nor I had enough air to stay out much longer. When the moms hiked close enough to see their helmeted faces, I saw they were led by Guntar, now Big Mom's main enforcer. You're kidding me, he said, grabbing my face mask with both his suited hands so he could both hold me and force his words to my ears. He was red-faced mad, sucking Oxymix at a terrible rate. Chicka, you're as crazy as your brother. Alna blew a mugging kiss at Guntar, turning his face even redder. She obviously didn't give a suit's tear about Guntar catching us. With Amare decayed, she didn't want to be reborn. Before Guntar bootstepped us back to the cave, he ordered us to rake the insulating ash back over the smoking hole. As I covered the last of the oxygen, a blue aural the size of my head flittered across the mirror landscape. The ball of energy circled us twice, only a meter above the ash. Like Amare had done as a child, I reached out to touch it as the clear tones of bells filled my head. The aural hovered near my glove for a moment, before the tiny ball arched back to the skies, like we hadn't mattered at all. Three years after Amare became the aural's chosen one, our father died in a cave-in while overseeing the mining of a new supply tunnel. Our planet suffered from constant seismic shocks. While the cave was built to survive tremors, the supply tunnels, which cut through the different layers of the planet's frozen atmosphere, frequently collapsed. That risk was why our father had several times asked Big Mom for a new job. But one did what Big Mom ordered, even unto death. Mother screamed in rage when she learned of the collapse and ordered the enforcers to dig through the rubble to reach him. He might still be alive, she said. But Big Mom stopped them. He's safer under the ice, Big Mom said, 
When Yur leaves aural space, we'll recover his frozen body and reborn him with tech you can scarcely imagine. He'll wake and learn how humans should truly live. Don't you understand? Our mother yelled. We're not leaving aural space. We never will. If this planet was going to leave, it would have done so a hundred years ago. A cold shock hush fell across the moms. Everyone knew we should have long since left aural space and been rescued by humanity. But that was a fact no one ever spoke in public, and especially not to Big Mom. Big Mom gestured to an enforcer, who raised a cleaver to our mother's neck. Speak of this again, Big Mom said, and your children are orphans. She spoke so dispassionately I had no trouble believing she'd once been an A.I. Our mother nodded and silently led Amare and me back to the safety of our little bub. A month later, Amare and I woke to find ourselves alone in our bub. By the time we dressed, Guntar stood outside our door. He wore the gray apprentice uniform of a newly sworn officer and grinned wickedly. Your mother killed herself, he said. Jumped out an airlock without a suit. I screamed at Guntar and tried to hit him, but Amare held me back. Liars! I yelled at Guntar. You, the Arles, Big Mom, all of you! Amare told me to shut up before he thanked Guntar for the news. Guntar looked surprised at Amare's icy reaction to our mother's death, then nodded his head like a pompous fool and walked away. Once we were alone, I told Amare that Big Mom killed our mother. Of course she did, Amare said in that calm, logical tone I found so irritating. But if you talk of this, we'll suffer the same fate. Our mother wouldn't want that. A few hours later, Amare and I watched the enforcers grind up our mother's stiff body and throw the pieces into the decay pit, where her flesh bubbled among the yellow and green liquids. Big Mom watched impassively, looking older than I remembered, and leaning on her main enforcer for support. When Big Mom finally spoke to the gathered crowd, she said she understood the anguish which drove our mother to question our mission and kill herself. However, she added, some things could not be allowed. Remember, she said, rebirth is only for the dutiful. Amare held my hand. Don't let the moms see your anger, he whispered. Anger will mark you as dangerous. As I shoved the tears back down my eyes, I swore to keep it hidden. Naturally, Amare and I were punished for our mother's deeds. We were kicked out of our bub into a new one near the bottom of the cave where the low kids lived. While our old bubble house had been big enough to sleep ten people side by side, our new bub, simply a round pocket carved into the rock and coated with thermal blankets, barely let you stretch out without touching both walls. Big Mom also demoted me to middle worker, forcing me to learn the trade of pressure suit repair. Amare, though, was given probation and allowed to continue his higher studies. After all, he was the chosen one, and the chosen one couldn't repair suits for the rest of his life. One night I couldn't sleep because of leg cramps from long hours of test-walking slush suits. I opened my glow tube and glanced through Amare's school books. Angry that I couldn't study and learn like he did, I wrote four questions on the back page of his physics book, the asking of any of which was a death sentence. My questions were simple. Why did the Aurals throw their home world into a new orbit and preserve it under mirror ash thousands of years before humanity reached space? Do the Aurals hate humanity's high tech, or do they hate us? Why hasn't this planet's orbit taken us back out of Aural space? If Big Mom is now human, why is she still alive after 600 years? 
For a moment, I considered letting Amare take the book to school and imagined his professor's reaction when they saw the questions their beloved chosen one dared to contemplate. But in the end, I couldn't risk Amare's life. I woke my brother and showed him what I'd done. He read the questions slowly, nodded solemnly, then tore the page out of the book. "'You truly are my twin,' he whispered. "'I have pondered the same questions, but you forgot the most important one, which is, "'What are you going to do about this?' Everyone else in the expedition loved it when the Chosen One was cryptic and sage-like. Me, I hit him and fell asleep angry. Big Mom was still, well, Big Mom. Guntar dragged Alna and I to our expedition's largest bubble house, where Big Mom sat surrounded by dozens of thermal blankets. Since I'd been kicked down to middle worker, I'd rarely been allowed up where the heat and air were sweet and you could walk around in only a thin, insulated jumpsuit. Even though being here meant we were in deep trouble, Alna smiled, enjoying the warmth and fresh air. I glanced out the window and saw the spiral tunnels leading to the lower cave, where the air turned cold and carbon dioxide pockets trapped anyone not wearing extra air. Big Mom muttered my name, and I turned back to her. She listened as Guntar gave her a one-sided view of catching us doing narcosis on the ice. Big Mom had aged badly in the decades since she'd killed my mother. Her body looked frail and weak, and she shivered despite several warmth blankets wrapped around her shoulders. However, you could still see the two purple lines from her eyes to cheekbones, signifying she'd once been an A.I. During Amare's studies of human history, he'd often told me stories about humanity's artificial overseers. I tried to imagine the power Big Mom once controlled, before realizing she still controlled enough power to kill me. When Guntar finished talking, Big Mom glared at me. Chica, it saddens me to see you under such circumstances, she said softly, like oxygen sublimating into near vacuum. How is your brother? He died several months ago. Oh, yes, I forgot, she said, a look of irritation running her face as if she hated dealing with the weakness of her now human memory. He was such an amazing child. Shame he went so strange. I nodded, not wanting to say anything to land Alna and me in even more trouble. I need to know what you were thinking, Big Mom said. Why risk your lives by doing narcosis on the surface? For once, Alna kept her damn mouth shut and merely glanced at me, silently urging me to do the talking. We both knew enough human history to feel the threat behind Big Mom's words. Before taking this voyage, Big Mom, or any AI, could have ripped the very thoughts and emotions from our minds, using the tech which saturated human existence beyond the oral system. But while I may not live damn near forever like Big Mom, and can't control technologies beyond my imagining on this iceball world, here my thoughts are my own. Despite her years as a human, Big Mom still didn't get this. We wanted to see if the Arles might respond to a different level of consciousness, I said cautiously. Big Mom stared, trying to decide the truth to my words. Guntar, however, rolled his eyes. He obviously didn't believe me. He moved his massive mouth toward Big Mom's ear like he was about to swallow the shrunken cartilage and skin there. But Big Mom waved him silent. Did you feel anything, Chica? she asked. Did they try to reach you? No, but right when Guntar found us, a small arl circled us several times. Maybe if he hadn't been there. Is this why so many low kids do nitrogen narcosis? Yes, I lied. They understand the mission, but they also want to try new ways of reaching the arls. 
Big Mom nodded in excitement. But just as I thought she might fall for my lies, a gentle tickle ran the back of my scalp. Big Mom's eyes narrowed to pinsticks of anger. You think it's funny to lie to me, she whispered. I should decay you. I tried to mutter an explanation, but Alna interrupted me. Go ahead and decay us, Alna said. At least we'll be with Amare. Guntar's face spit a wicked cut of a smile. I'm so sorry for what happened to Amare, he said. He could have gone places, even with such a poor choice in a mate. That comment pushed Alna over the edge. You son bitch! She screamed in low kid talk as she leapt at Guntar. You know, you decay Amare! Guntar easily slammed Alna to the floor. Because Big Mom was watching, he didn't do the different pains and hurts he knew, but he was so much stronger than Alna, he didn't need tricks. I reached for Alna, maybe to get her to calm down, maybe to get Guntar not to hurt her, and suddenly I was thrown to the floor. The mom guarding the door held me down, pressing her knee into my back and twisting my right arm behind me. I glanced at Alna, who cried like she had when Amare died. Guntar told Big Mom we'd always been trouble. Big Mom nodded, still angry at my lie. But she softened as she stared at me, and I knew she was seeing Amare's face in place of my own. Maybe she regretted all she'd done to push my brother to his death. Don't kill them, she said, her voice exhausted as if she'd walked in a slush suit emptied of oxygen. Work them. In the decay pit. The decay pit lay hundreds of meters below in the very lowest reaches of the cave, heated by the expedition's heat exchangers, which reached the planet's core and used natural convection to cycle cold down and heat up. The pit was warm enough that people actually sweated when they worked. Amare once told me that if the big moms had wanted to, they could have built our expedition with enough heat exchangers so the entire cave would be as warm as the pit. Why didn't they? I asked naively. If everyone had good heat and air, we wouldn't need Big Mom to control us. I thought of this as the enforcers dragged us to the decay pit shores. For a moment, I feared Guntar would defy Big Mom and grind us up, dumping our kibble into the pit like he'd done my brother. Instead, Guntar held a half-eaten fruit ball before my face, then tossed it into the liquid decay. Maybe Amare's hungry, he said. Alna's eyes flashed with rage, but I held her back so she wouldn't get us in even more trouble. You are such a wimp! She screamed at me. Guntar laughed as he left us to our prison. So began my life as a low kid. Working the decay pit was the worst job in the expedition. The size of a thousand bub houses, the pit contained a lake of bacteria and modified fungi which digested everything thrown in. Our job consisted of rowing a boat back and forth across the pit, so our paddles mixed the ferment and liquids. We'd then strain the muck from the bottom with a net and drag it to shore, where we packed the slime around the roots of the pale green vegetables and grains, their thin, sickly leaves arching toward the faint lights on the ceilings. In a connected chamber, a lake of Shiwanella bacterium hummed as they turned even more waste into weak electricity, which was fed into the decay pit's simple grow lights. This far down, low oxygen levels and carbon dioxide pockets posed a continual threat. Since CO2 was denser than good air, the gas continually flowed down the cave, at times building to dangerous levels in the pit. As a result, Alna and I always wore extra air and rebreathers. Despite that, I gasped for each breath, 
the pit's humid, rotten stench keeping a continual backwash of vomit in my throat. The heat also dripped sweat from my body, a feeling I'd never felt before, and now hated with a passion. Whenever the ice fetchers dragged one of the rare blocks of air to the pit, I'd stand near the ice both to cool off and breathe the fresh air as it sublimated away. Several times each day, other low kids dragged sacks of rotten food or compost to the pit, which we'd crank through an ancient grinder before dumping the kibble into the pit. I often stared at the grinder's pointed glass fingers, which were still sharp despite 600 years of grinding, and wondered at the power of the humans and AIs who created all this. Then I'd cuss them for sticking me with such a life. Alna, though, loved the work. She made snowballs out of the muck and threw them at me. When I once muttered that this job would kill us, she shook her head and dipped a bare hand into the decay pit. "'Can you feel Omare?' she asked. I said she was as crazy as my brother. She pursed her lips and kissed me on the side of my rebreather, thanking me for the compliment. Could I feel Amare? Yes. I felt his loss each and every day. Amare died less than a year after he defied Big Mom by marrying Alna. While middle workers occasionally married low kids, moms never did. But as usual, Amare didn't do what everyone told him to do. Big Mom sentenced him to work the decay pits until he changed his mind. Amare never did. One cold night, when the exchangers poured almost no heat into the low kids' area of the cave, Amare returned from the pits with the coughing fever. Alna and I stayed awake, worrying over him. With the air too poor to risk candles, Alna opened her portable glow tube and lit the bub in the faint green of bioluminescence. Each time Amare coughed, Alna pounded his back to clear the congestion. Each smack caused the foxfire inside the glow tube to flicker, almost as if the modified mushrooms feared for Amare's life. After what seemed like hours, Amare regained his breathing. When the tick-tock clock chimed its regular call for more air, he released a burst of freshness from the oxymix canister. He then asked what I thought of the AIs who sent us on this mission. "'What do I think?' I whispered in anger, what type of people sacrifice future generations to a life of pain and cold, with only the promise of a new life, if we behave? Every big mom deserves to decay for this. That's just it, Amare said. The big moms aren't human. They don't see life as we do. But they reborn us, Alna said softly in the dark, her low kid slang clipping gently over us. Don't talk this, or you'll get decayed. They won't reborn us. Amare said knowingly, Why reborn a bunch of know-nothing humans who've lived without the most basic tech? Besides, this planet isn't taking us home. We're already a hundred years past the pickup. We have to seek our own rebirths. Alna shifted nervously. Like me, she was both excited and fearful at the idea that we could manage our own rebirths. We waited for Amare to say more. But instead he moaned. Alna cradled Amare's burn-hot body while I passed into sleep, thinking on Amare's words. I woke hours later to Amare's face, a finger touched from mine in the green-tinted dark. You should have been chosen, not me, he whispered. The AIs are master manipulators. I nodded, even though I didn't know what he meant. The Arles had chosen him, not Big Mom, who wasn't even an AI anymore. Don't worry about it. I said. Amare was silent, not appearing to breathe. Worried, I touched his frighteningly hot cheek, then wiped his forehead with the water rag. Even though the wind-up clock hadn't chimed its reminder for air, I vented a little extra from the canister. 
Amare sighed and closed his eyes. Just as I started to doze off, he whispered in my ear, Reborn this world. That's our test. That's our burden. How can we reborn a whole world when we can barely stay alive? I asked. He smiled, but didn't say anything more before falling asleep. I wiped his forehead a final time and also fell asleep. When the clock next chimed for air, he was dead. Alna cried, but I told her to hush. We have to get Amare to an airlock, I said. Rush him to ice before the moms find out. Alna whispered agreement. While Alna readied my slush suit, I grabbed a pail of air and ran through the spiral tunnel to the low kid's communal bub. Two of our friends, Luck and Tuck, lived there with maybe fifty others. Luck and Tuck were a sister and brother who'd always been low kids. While Luck and Tuck mostly kept to themselves, they were also hard workers and always ready to help a friend. I found them in the communal bub's mass of stenching, shivering bodies and told them about Amare. Tuck grabbed his slush suit while Luck put on her air pail and ran to help Alna drag Amare to the reserve airlock, which was rarely guarded. I popped into my slush suit, pumped in a supply of air from our canister, then climbed to the airlock to find Alna holding Amare's head to her chest. I promised we'd bury Amare's body deep in the oxygen layer. Cover him good, so moms don't find, she said. I nodded and carried Amare into the lock. As Tuck cranked the lock through its venting cycle, I prayed that the Arles would protect my brother until our planet once again left Arl space, that those amazing humans and AIs who lived among the stars would reborn his frozen body, that one day, in the far future, Amare and I would be reunited. But the Arles must not have been listening, because as I rolled the airlock door to the side, all I saw were the cold, face-masked eyes of Guntar and his goons. By the end of our third month in the decay pit, Alna and I had the cough, the same hack and crack which killed Amare. Each day we climbed down from our bub and reported to the pit boss, a wannabe mom named Handel who never spoke a word. But he was big and strong, and when he pointed at a job, we did what he wanted without question. The one time Alna smarted off to him, he backhanded her a meter into the pit. At first, the other low kids treated me with suspicion. Only Luck and Tuck and Alna taught me how to survive in the bad air and harsh work of the lower cave. Alna explained that this was simply how low kids were. They can't know you. Think maybe you mom spy, so they watch. Be patient. Alna was right. As time went by, I began to be accepted. Once, as I ate breakfast in the communal kitchen, someone asked why my brother married a low kid. I shrugged and said he loved Alna, which was true. Another low kid asked if she could have a bub house like mine. I said she had to ask Big Mom, which caused curses all around. One day the cave shook, sending waves across the decay pit and disturbing the electric bacteria so much they shut down light power. Alna and I sat very still in our little boat, listening to the waves ripple the shoreline rocks. I told Alna the cave had been built to withstand quakes far worse than this. She didn't say anything, but her hand snatched mine in a painfully tight grip. Only when the lights glowed again, and our fear of being entombed in the pit's sea of muck vanished, did she let go. That wasn't our worst day in the pit. That happened when Guntar and his enforcers dragged a mom to the pit. The man, an aged astronomer for whom I'd once repaired a slush suit, was silent as Guntar strapped him to the grinder. 
Alna started to protest, but I silenced her by pointing to the squad of twenty enforcers who stood just outside the main entrance. Those moms wore spacesuits so black I had trouble seeing where the suits ended and shadows began. Their spacesuits worked much like our slush suits, meaning you had to mechanically crank in air supplies, but what really mattered was that their suits were indestructible. The moms also carried combat cleavers, whose large glass-like blades could cut through ice and flesh with equal ease. You, Amare boy, Guntar yelled at me. Get over here. I trudged over. Guntar told me to crank the grinder. I glanced at the old man strapped down before me, who stared calmly at the ceiling. Alna said she'd turn the crank, but Guntar told her to shut up. I leaned over the condemned man and whispered my apologies. "'It's not your fault,' the man said in his sing-song educated voice, "'and if it had to be anyone, I'm glad it's Amare's brother.' "'Get to cranking,' Guntar ordered. I turned the crank, and the man slowly moved toward the row of glass cleavers. Guntar had strapped the man in so his feet hit the cleavers first. To the man's credit, he didn't scream until his ankles started to be ground to fingernail-sized pulp. I cranked as fast as I could, but the grinder wasn't built for speed. The man died when the grinders reached his knees, all his blood spurting into the exhaust tray. I kept cranking until there was nothing left but bloody kibble, which rattled and poured down the tray into the pit. Guntar slapped me on the back. He asked if I wanted to know the man's crime. It doesn't matter. I said. Guntar cut his face into his ugly, wide smile. Exactly. That's exactly what I was going to say. And that is part one. Do listen out next week for part two. Jason, thank you so much. Don't forget, copyright is Jason Sanford. Copyright is Jeff Carlson's. There's no copyright on me. You're just going to have what you like of me. So, on the week that Starship Sofa Stories Volume 2 came out, please do the right thing. Get yourself a copy. Support what you believe in. I hope you believe in my show and what I do. Do you know what I mean? Week in, week out, bring your stuff like this. Bring, in your, bring you back to science fiction. I've just had an email, which was a lovely little email. So, you know, I used to read science fiction and then I kind of grew out of it and, and I didn't, you know, come back into it. And now I've listened to your show. I'm so loving science fiction again. This is what we do. This is, we rekindle the love of science fiction. And I can say, help us do that. Support this community. Thank you so much. Until next week, I would just like to say, good night from me. survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of Starship Sofa, a vacuation procedure initiated. Shuttle set for launch. Airlock will be opened in three, two, one. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, 
HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.